digital transformation lessons and trends headed into 2023, the future of change management, as well as cold rain in the cloud. Those are just a few of the things we're going to talk about in today's episode of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. This is the podcast that we stream every Wednesday with new episodes covering everything related to digital transformation and everything you need to know related to transformation, including the strategy, people, process, and technology size of change. Uh, Kyler, thanks for being here again today. Thanks for having me. Great episode planned for you today. Uh, Later in the show, we have a a couple of guests that we're going to bring on. We're going to bring on first uh, Bonnie Tinder, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Raven Intel. And we're going to talk about some of the quantitative lessons from system and software implementations in 2022, as well as some of the lessons and predictions or takeaways that we can take into 2023 as we plan our digital strategies. So stay tuned for Bonnie. She'll be on the show here shortly after our our opening segment. And then later in the show, our second guest will be uh, Tim Creasy talking about the future of change management. And this is actually one of our, or one of your uh, top three picks for the top interviews that we've done in 2023, 2022, I should say. And uh, it's a replay from uh, earlier this year. So that was one of your favorites, Kyler, as well as one of mine. So we thought we'd replay that for you uh, here today. And then starting the show today, we have a few different hot topics, including innovation in aviation startups. We're going to talk about food tech immersion in South Africa, or in, in Africa in general, not just South Africa. And then we're also going to talk about bring your own device policies and tech efficiency, as well as cold rain in the cloud. So what are some of these these hot topics you have for us, Kyler? Yeah, well, I want to talk about aviation, especially it's a, a current hot topic, not only in technology, but also just in our overall uh, society in general with a lot of um, travel going around for the, the holiday season um, throughout the world. So something interesting that's been happening with um, bigger aviation companies is they've been starting incubation startups, so almost like a startup within a, a large corporation. And a lot of times that model is to kind of just bring some innovation to processes that might have become stagnant or new ideas into the overall um, the overall company. So specifically today, I want to talk about JetBlue Ventures. So JetBlue is a large um, global airline, uh, mostly based out of the U.S. on the east side of the United States, but does fly globally. Um, And they actually have invested in early stage partnerships with not only their own startup, but other startups within the travel and hospitality transportation industries. So they have five investment themes that they really look at. Um, And most of the time it's focused on sustainable travel because we talk a lot about how that's an emerging need in the overall transportation space. 
but it also looks at this this quality of seamless customer centric journeys. And basically, it's it's reimagining the over accommodation experience, next generation of ADA, aviation operations and enterprise technology. Uh, they talk about distribution, loyalty, and revenue management. And what they do is they utilize the big data to look at routes from over 100 billion itineraries in real time. Uh, to garner insights and how they can not only create efficiencies, but they can also map customer data and give essentially additional demand to routes that are in need of uh, additional, you know, pilots or anything like that uh, to create that opening. Um, so this this to me is really interesting in the fact of not only leveraging that big data to do so, but utilizing other partners, which a lot of times have been a hard boundary for the aviation industry that they've kind of tried to push against those third party booking systems, but now actually leveraging the insights and data that, data that they have to create um, more operational efficiencies and just an overall better customer experience. So wanted to get kind of your feedback on kind of uh, transcending those party lines, if you will, around um, that that was a, a more of a conflict that's become more of a data sharing approach, which we've seen in other industries too. Yeah, I mean, society and multiple industries, including aviation, are, are so data rich. I mean, there's so much data out there that is being captured, but not really being used the way it could be. So I think AI and machine learning are two technologies that are definitely opening up the the opportunities for for how to use that data i do find it interesting you know just thinking about where that you draw the line for the the boundaries of data and i find it interesting that you know case studies or use cases like this where organizations are really thinking outside the box of not just looking at their own internal transactional data but looking more broadly at other data sets and i think that's it seems like that's something that will be the future um because that's really the best way to get maximum and optimized use of AI, machine learning, and other technologies is to leverage all the data that's out there, not just the data that you own or that you have, you know, on your systems in the cloud or wherever it is. Yeah, that that concept of that interoperability, but through different platforms that might not be a part of an enterprise technology stack, but also right. just outside of those strategic partnerships. So I'm curious, why do you think and this might be an, an a very difficult question, but you know I, I like to you know really put favorites. you on the spot. It's my favorite yep. thing to do. Why <laughs> is digital transformation and digital strategy implementation so hard for the aviation industry? Well, I think part of it is it, it's a you know it's a fairly complex industry. It's a lot like uh, utilities and energy. I know recently on the show we we talked about utilities and energy being a particularly complex industry. We had a, an interview that focused on that on that space. Uh, food and beverage tends to be somewhat complex too, just because you've got recipes and a lot of complexity in the manufacturing processes and traceability and regulatory things. And, you know, within aviation, it's a similar kind of thing. You have, you think about all the things that make a transformation complex or, or make a business complex in general, which therefore will make a transformation within that complex business more complex. But you think about things like um, very capital intensive, a lot of maintenance, repair and operation type of uh, things that need to happen behind the scenes that are critical to to the success of the organization. Um, certainly, obviously, the customer side of it, as far as um, the logistics of buying a ticket and buying um, and consuming the actual flight or, that you're you're going to be a part of. 
Um, and then you've got all the regulatory stuff too on top of that, which adds additional complexity. So I think you just look at the complexity of the industry and on a scale of one to 10, you know, it might be an eight or a nine in terms of complexity, which means your digital transformation within those industries are going to be a very complex as well. Well, I feel as though the aviation industry is ripe for a digital transformation. So here's to hoping with those incubation products that we can maybe look at a smoother sailing as we go into, um, or smoother flying, I should say, as we go yeah. into the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Next time I'm flying, I'm going to think about all the data that these airlines could and should be using to make my experience more enjoyable on those airlines. Yeah. Maybe you could like tell the person next to you and be that, that person that like puts up their book or puts in their headphones, like, please don't talk yes. to me. On <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I'll, I'll be that guy. Yeah. Right. That's, that's right. annoying the people next to me. Talk, want to talk about AI and other geeky stuff. <laughs> hey, maybe they'll like it. I would. So, yeah, but speaking of, of AI and geeky stuff, um, let's move into kind of the food tech scene in specifically the Africa market. So there's been a lot of movement there on the capital side. So we look at in specifically Africa, the biggest segment of restaurants, which is over a $50 billion industry is smaller restaurants. These restaurants, as we see a lot of times in small to medium-sized businesses, um, can't really integrate the bigger systems into their overall needs or they, um, you know, they run operations manually because they, they can't afford or they don't have the flexibility for a different system. Uh, and we've recently seen, it's called Orda. It's a Nigerian food tech platform that provides cloud-based restaurants operating systems um, that actually are catered to smaller independent restaurant owners. Uh, and recently they announced that they raised $3.4 million in seed investments in their hmm. two-year startup. Wow. So de despite this growth, they bring a solution that's really unique by offering a cloud-based platform that digitizes the overall operations, removes the pen and pencils, provides data insights to their actual restaurant owners, inventory management, those types of things, without a real playbook for the cloud in the Africa market. As we know, that can be a, a, a huge challenge. So they've come into contact with their fair share of constraints. For instance, they had to configure a cloud-based solution to work offline and let restaurants continue to log data in times when internet access was poor, for example. So wondering how your reaction to these types of startups in emerging markets, obviously innovation is so important, but there can be some really challenging logistical constraints when it comes to launching a SaaS specifically based platform in these areas. Yeah, it's it's a great point. And it's, it's one of those uh, dark sides of the cloud that isn't well covered in the industry in that you know, we have, we have a big client that's an international client right now, and they, uh, we've been involved with them for a few years now, and they, they have offices in pretty rural parts of the world, including throughout Africa, where internet connectivity is spotty at best. And I think in a lot of, um, you know, more developed societies where Wi-Fi is reliable, especially if you're in an urban area and you're in a, you know, a fairly developed country, you sort of take for granted the fact that, Wi-Fi is not necessarily everywhere and reliable Wi-Fi and the, the speed that we need to be able to support data and transactions and all that stuff in the cloud is not available to a lot of people in the world. These, these aren't just, uh, you know, it's not just random, small, isolated pockets of, of the world. These are pretty significant parts of the world. 
So I think that's that's something that you really have to take into account is what is your backup plan and how are you going to function your business if and when you don't have access to real-time data and you don't have access to the cloud? How are you going to keep functioning? But I think it's super interesting in, um, you know, because Africa and developing countries in general oftentimes are more fragmented um, in industries like food and, and restaurants and things like that, uh, things of that nature. I think it creates a unique opportunity, though, and, and certainly the cloud is a is an, a relatively low cost and easy way for a startup to to build and deploy new types of technologies. But I think it's a good it's a great question: is how do you how do you manage that downside risk of of cloud, especially in a developing country or developing region like like parts of Africa? Absolutely. I mean, and it's, I think it speaks a lot to the ability of these African startups to innovate, to create these workarounds that can still effectively support um, their client community that they, they have utilizing this, especially when we see these high growth type of models um, kind of challenging the status quo. Uh, so, you know, I always love a, a good underdog, which they don't seem to be. They seem to be going on the upper dog um, there. Right. But- um, and what- what country is this? Do you remember what country the um, soft, the startup that you're talking about is based? Yes, it's in Nigeria. So they oh, have Nigeria. clients okay. throughout Central Africa into the South Africa market, um, as well as um, the Iron Coast or the Ivory Coast. The Ivory Coast. Okay. <laughs> it was the it's the Iron Throne. We've had like a Game of Thrones a theme throughout that. <laughs> so, um, right. but the Ivory Coast is is what I mean. So. Uh, but they've, you know, they've raised almost $5 million in, in simply two years of funding and brought in a, a very um, impressive executive team to kind of lead them into the area that they see this really large need um, on not only the actual operation side, but the distribution side they play in as well. So very interesting, um, smaller company to definitely keep on our watch list. Yeah, and it also goes to show that tech innovation and startups are happening everywhere, you know, throughout the world, not just in any one concentrated, stereotypical uh, place like Silicon Valley in the U.S. or um, you know Ireland and in Europe is known for its technology, but it's it's those areas plus a bunch of other areas in other parts of the world are are pretty innovative when it comes to technology, which is pretty interesting. Yes, of course. And of course, shameless plug, we do have a, a third stage Africa office, our EMEA office, and we recently did a digital stratosphere that's still available to um, listen on our events page. Um, you can also go to stratosphere2022.com if you want to see all of our stratospheres, but highly recommend listening to our specifically our CIO panel um, all Africa-based CIOs, um, one from the Middle East as well, that kind of talk about the digital transformation that's going on in that key market. So if you are interested in that, um, that's something that I highly recommend um, checking out as well. So, Yeah, and another fun fact, just on a personal level, of all the places I've been to in the world, Africa is by far my favorite uh, part really? to visit or my favorite region of the world to visit. So not only do we have an office there, but I have a personal affinity for for the region as well. Excellent. Well, it sounds like we need a summit in Africa. Here we, we definitely come. do. Yeah, we've <laughs> got to plan that for 23. You, you should get on that since you're our marketing oh, yeah. uh, director. Uh, if you I can will. just make that happen, that'd be great. <laughs> that sounds like approval, everybody. Do you hear approval? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I should have thought that through before I made that public. <laughs> Document, documented, nope, it's, uh, it's recorded. It's forever. It's on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the internet. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, I kind of want to go into one of the trends that we've been seeing specifically in the last few weeks here 
in kind of the enterprise tech space. And it's that leaning out, that kind of hesitancy around a looming recession and what that might look like, and just overall tactics to kind of lean out and create efficiencies in specifically IT or enterprise technology. So one of those that's been a hot topic is this this concept of BYOD, so bring your own device policies. Um, and this is something that I just wanted to get your um, your thought on from not only a technology standpoint, a cybersecurity standpoint, but also organizational change. So kind of a, a nice round out. So usually what this looks like is it has two main benefits. First and foremost, you don't have to purchase devices for every single new employee and have that resources and onboarding them, maintaining them. Um, and then from a employee's perspective, they're working with devices that they're already familiar with, which has really become a, a difficult barrier in enterprise tech because we're so ingrained with you are an Android user or you're an Apple user. And that's kind of become a way of life. You don't see a lot of data around switching of those devices because the operating systems are so unique. You kind of become loyal to that. Um you know, of course, there's risks to you. You could have potential holes in cybersecurity, and that might be enough to tell a company to say, no, that's not a great idea. Um, but you have to make sure you have those clear policies and procedures in place, um, such as damage to the advice, regular backups, and to ensure data integrity. But wanted to get your take on what you think about this specific tactic and leaning out a tech budget or creating efficiencies in technology operations. Yeah, it's, it's a, <clears throat> there's two, two sides of it. I mean, first and foremost, I'm overall the net, uh, my net opinion is that I'm, I'm in favor of the bring your own device to, um, to work sort of thing. Um, in fact, when we started third stage, that was a, an early tenant. It was that people are going to bring their own devices, partly because when you're in startup mode, it, it certainly, you know, saves some upfront capital investment, but also because, you know, when you start a company, it's a lot of times for a lot of entrepreneurs, you, you want to create a company that you didn't get a chance to work at, or, or at the very least, it's a, a company you want to work at. And I always found it frustrating when you were just handed a laptop that may or may not be something you wanted or may or may not, you know, meet the needs of what you need to accomplish in your day-to-day -day job. And so I didn't want to do that. I wanted to give people the option to bring their own, their own, uh, laptops. And I'm a Mac guy, for example. So I prefer Macs and Apple devices, but I understand that a lot of consultants, in fact, probably most consultants in the world don't. So I certainly didn't want to impose a, a Mac, uh, sort of, uh, mandate across the company. So I think it, you know, from a change management perspective and just a usability employee experience, whatever you want to call it, I think it's, uh, mostly positive. Uh, but I, I think where you're, you kind of alluded to this, I think the bigger concern and risk is, well, first of all, you are missing out on potential economies of scale. If you're a big company, you know, the big companies that have big purchasing departments that go out and buy a thousand laptops, obviously they're going to get a much better rate than what we pay for people to use their own devices. And we pay people a stipend, you know, to use their own devices. There, there's some monetary um, incentive or not incentive, but a, a payment that we make for people to use their own devices, but we'd probably save money if we just, um, you know, we're a bigger company or even now that we've got 50 or 60 people, if we were buying 50 or 60 laptops at a time, we're probably going to be lower per unit cost. Uh, but the even bigger risk though, aside from the cost efficiency loss that you get from BYOD um, is more the cybersecurity side of it. You know, just locking down the security is a little bit trickier, but you know, we have an outside security firm that helps us do that. So we don't, we don't have to manage that. So as long as you're managing that security piece of it and the 
cost efficiency losses and the economies of scale losses are not material, then I think it overall, it could be a very positive thing. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're saying is really going back to it depends, right? It depends on the organization, but it's important. I think what you're saying is to not just embrace trends, but to evaluate them, to know if they're right for your overall ecosystem and business, um, not only from a technology standpoint, a cost standpoint, but then also, you know, how are you going to create a standardized policy around maintaining these machines or, um, protecting them. So definitely something that that we've seen grow, but may not be right for everyone. Do you, do you have a sense in your the um, research of the article that you're referring to? Do you have a sense of roughly what percentage or, you know, is the I majority of companies are see, doing it? Or? Yeah, I didn't see a ton of data around that, um, which is why, you know, I think it's important to talk about trends are trends, but unless you have, you know, some significant numbers and like you, I'd have to assume that it's, it's more entrepreneurial startup type of organizations that can really overall hone in on that, that need or that ability. It's much difficult, obviously, if we're talking about fortune 100 companies um, to kind of standardize all of the, the different pieces that they're working with from a technology standpoint. So um, but I think it's, you know, it's definitely an interesting trend as we move into what does the technical workforce look like? Yeah, absolutely. Be curious to keep an eye on that and see how it evolves over time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about, you know, the rain in the cloud and get your umbrella out because um, it's been More a rough specifically month. The cold, the cold rain. Is that? Oh, the cold rain. How, <laughs> is that how you described it? And I'm, I'm just fascinated. So, uh, poetic you know it sounds it poetic and technical at the same time i'm yeah. really curious Cold to hear rain in the cloud absolutely um so it's it's really no secret and i, w- I want to kind of talk about what you your thoughts are on the cloud um overall adoption and then also purchasing of cloud software in um, 2023 so in november right now when we record this episode it's november 2022 uh it's been a really rough month for cloud software stocks Um, They experienced the worst week on record to kick off November and have really seen a slowdown in business spending after a wave of cloud adoption in the first two years of the pandemic. So there's two specific uh, companies that are kind of bucking this trend, and and I'm interested if you could tell us why um, or what your thoughts are. Um, So they're in reporting next week, two of the biggest names in the sector are Cloud Pioneer Salesforce, CRM, and then Snowflake, which is a a younger, new, up-and-coming company. Those two are winning. So I'm interested to see why do you think they're winning and what do you think the future is for this kind of fall-off of cloud adoption or cloud software purchasing after a very high, um, high intense buying period in the pandemic? Well, I I don't know... My hypothesis would be, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but my hypothesis would be that it doesn't really have so much to do with the fact that the cloud is cooling off or, or demand for cloud products are cooling off um, because, you know, both products you mentioned, Salesforce and uh, Snowflake are, are cloud solutions. But I think maybe the bigger issue or the bigger un- underlying issue is that organizations are becoming less tolerant of big, massive enterprise-wide technology deployments that may or may not deliver value. And when the economy is weak, like it is right now for much of the world and inflation's high, um, 
unemployment's going up. There's layoffs happening. Uh, capital spending is is being questioned a bit more than in the past. When you see those, when you see that backdrop in years past, it's pretty common that you start to see the point solutions, the the really um, high value specific types of solutions like Salesforce on the CRM side, Snowflake on the BI and analytics side, Data Lake, all that stuff. Those are really high value areas for a lot of organizations where they, I think a lot of organizations would rather spend less money and really double down on something that they know is going to deliver value and they know it solves a specific problem rather than going with, say, a, a potential money pit ERP sort of implementation, which many ERP implementations turn into money pits that fail to deliver value. So, you know, I think it's a good thing, actually. I, I actually like, I don't want to say I like recessions because uh, it's unfortunate for a lot of people and that's that's insensitive of me to say that, but I, I do like the unintended consequence of a recession in that it forces companies to be a lot smarter. And when, during recessions, we see companies be a lot smarter. And when the economy is doing really well and the purse strings aren't so tight, they make really bad decisions that haunt them for years to come. And so I think, you know, if you're going to look at a silver lining of a recession, that could be it. But I, I think that's probably what it is, is just more of the, the fact that Salesforce and Snowflake are two good examples of very focused, high value ROI types of types of solutions. Interesting. So do you, do you think as we go into 2023, there might not be a, a stop to that, but there might be more of a mindful approach to understanding, is there a real need for cloud software? Um, as that continues to be the future, it just might not be as urgent and forced as it was during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's sort of like the pendulum swung pretty extreme during the pandemic because people realized we've got these old outdated uh, on-premise systems and it's really hard to run a business when half your workforce or whatever is, is remote and you don't have a cloud system. And then you add, you know, to the fact that software vendors are also imposing these arbitrary deadlines for you to get off their legacy on-premise systems. And it was just creating a lot of panic or you know, false sense of urgency of having to invest in some sort of cloud solution now to replace their old systems for those two reasons. So um, and now that that's waning and people have sort of settled into the way the world's going to be going forward, um, now I think, you know, you throw in a recession and, and companies are really, really rethinking that and really, you know, looking objectively at the the downside risk. One of my predictions that I posted out on mo multiple platforms, including YouTube, Instagram and TikTok was that I I said, right? In fact, I have a whole video that focuses on this thread as well as it's it's a prediction within a broader prediction video. But one of my predictions for 2023 is they would start to be the beginning of the end for ER, big ERP vendors. And um, it's a controversial, I mean, based on the responses I'm getting on social media, I'm getting roasted by about half of the people that watch the video and tell me that I have no idea what I'm doing and a complete idiot. And I clearly have never been in the technology space, if that's what I think. And then the other half are saying, hey, I think you're right. I think that's that's a trend that could be emerging. And you know, time will tell if I'm right or wrong or somewhere in between. But um, the reason I bring it up, though, is it's clearly a controversial topic, this whole thing you're bringing up. You know, it, it kind of opens up a Pandora's box of other issues of best of breed versus single integrated systems. And can ERP systems really deliver ROI? Or are they doomed for failure, they doomed to be big, massive money pits and that, you know, there's a lot of other conversations we could have related to that. But I think um, to your initial question, I think, um, you know, companies should just, you know, be open-minded. I think in, anytime you get a 
industry telling you that there's only one answer, that's usually means there's something wrong with the message and or there's some sort of economic incentive driving that one size fits all answer. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you summed it up in your, your last statement. There is no one size fits all answer. Right. And I think that's what people are, are, are coming to be wise to. So the, the industry is, is becoming disrupted in that overall customer expectation that their needs are met, not that the needs need to meet the system. So that's, you know, definitely something that we've seen emerging, which is excited for us because we've been saying that for a very long time. Um, and, you know, that's why people like to listen to you because you, you are controversial and kind of saying what you really see as opposed to what somebody else tells you to see. So, yeah. And if that's a topic that's of interest to you and you're listening, if you go to my uh, TikTok channel, and, and I'm calling out TikTok because that's where the audience was a lot more brutal. YouTube is a generally a, a favorable, friendly audience, I would say. You know, I don't get a lot of negative hate hate messages or things like that, but on TikTok, I do. And I think, it, I don't know if it's because the younger kids just don't see things the way I do and vice versa, or if it's just something about the platform that encourages controversy. But if you go to, I have it pinned at the top of my um, TikTok channel, and, and you'll see it. It's called The Death of ERP. And uh, if you read the comments, it's, they're kind of entertaining. We should probably, we, we've talked about potentially reading some of those comments on this podcast, just because um, some of them are pretty funny. Even the, even the mean ones are, are funny in, in some ways, but um, it is an interesting, but I would love to hear people's comments, you know, either there on TikTok or just comment here. What do you think about this whole point solution, cloud solution, um, best of breed movement versus single ERP systems? Do you, do you see the pendulum swinging one way or the other? I'd love to see the comments in the in the wherever you're watching or listening to the show. Yeah, and if you are a student listening to the show and we make you miserable every week, please be sure to tell us because that cracks us up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That was one of the I forgot where was that comment? Someone someone actually made that comment that I make their lives miserable because yep. their professor forces them to watch <laughs> all my videos. And I yeah. I couldn't help but think, well, you're welcome. I mean, what better way to spend your time than to watch videos of me talking about digital transformation? But uh, this person did not agree at all. But I don't remember where that comment came from. Was it, it on was this on, podcast? Um, it was on one of our live streams. Um, so oh, it, okay. it is um, up on our YouTube channel, but definitely makes us laugh, um, the younger generation and, and people. But at least there's passion out there towards yes. technology and enterprise technology. So. Um, and then speaking of passion, you have one other disruptor that we're, we're bringing on the show today um, that is definitely helpful in the agnostic and independent um, software selection or, or software evaluation um, area of digital transformation. Yeah, yeah. And she's actually a return guest. She's been on our show before, but it was a long time ago. She was probably, I'd say in the first two or three months of launching this podcast, she was on the show and we haven't had her since. Um, not intentionally, it just hasn't been on our schedules, but uh, we did, we do have a chance to have her back on the show here today, which I'm really excited for. And to your point, she is a fellow disruptor in the space. She's sort of doing something so basic and so simple that you wonder why it's disruptive, which is a whole nother uh, conversation for another time. But her name is Bonnie Tinder, and she's the CEO and founder of a company called Raven Intel, which is essentially, it's like the Yelp of system integrators. So if you're looking for a uh, in SAP or success factors or any sort of specific technology system integrator, you can go to ravenintel.com and read actual customer reviews that have been uh, vetted by her, she and her team. So um, she, she kind of, they eliminate the, 
you know, the competitor spam, spamming each other, knocking each other. These are actually verified customers uh, that, that have feedback, quantitative feedback, qualitative feedback, a lot like Yelp or an Amazon review or whatever. So anyway, we're going to have her on the show to talk about, you know, these masses of data that she captures within Raven Intel. I just wanted to ask her some questions about uh, what are some of the lessons, you know, some of the patterns she's seeing as it relates to digital transformations and software implementations in 2022, and what should we be aware of as we plan our digital transformations in 2023? So we'll have Bonnie Tinder on the show as soon as we take a quick break. Well, first, we'll take a quick break, and you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation strategy, including the people, process, and technology sides of change. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to subscribe, um, leave us a comment, leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback on the show and certainly leave uh, in the comments any, any feedback you have as well. I'm excited for our next guest. We're going to have Bonnie Tinder, who is the CEO and founder of a company called Raven Intel, which is actually a website slash platform where you can leave reviews of system integrators and technical implementers for various types of enterprise technologies. And we wanted to have her on the show to talk about lessons from software implementations in 2022 and more specifically quantitative lessons. You know, what are some, what's the data showing? What are customers struggling with? Where, where's the industry headed? And what should we be aware of as we plan our digital transformations in 2023? And by the way, you can learn more about Raven Intel and, and read some of the reviews that we're going to talk about here today by going to ravenintel.com. And that's spelled R-A-V-E-N-I-N-T-E-L.com. And uh, with us, as I mentioned, is Bonnie Tinder. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to, to the conversation. Absolutely. You've been on my podcast before. It's been a while, so it, it'll be good to catch up. And this is a great time of year to have you on the show because we can sort of look back at 2022 and look at what some of the lessons and trends are and also look ahead to what is what is the digital transformation space hold for us and what's in store for 2023 as we look ahead to the new year. Um, so I guess just to start, maybe just tell us a little bit about you personally. Tell us about your background and how you you kind of grew up in this in this crazy digital transformation space that we're in. Yeah, well, um, I'm located here in Chicago. Uh, Eric, I can see your snowy background here. Luckily, we don't have that just yet uh, in Chicago. Um, I have, <laughs> uh, I spent 25 years in the uh, HR technology space working for both large SaaS vendors as well as consulting firms. Um, I actually started my career in implementation many moons ago before moving into 
um, marketing and, and analyst relations. Um, and about four years ago, I started my company, Raven Intelligence, um, and have been uh, in that world ever since. Great. So you've seen a lot of you've seen a lot in your career, and and um, I, I know we're going to hone in here on Raven Intel and talk about um, some of your findings from data that you've captured and, and analyzed from Raven Intel. But maybe tell us a little bit more about Raven Intel. What is it? Um, what's the website? What's the purpose of it? All that good stuff. Yeah. So ravenintel.com is um, our exact address. And we are a peer review site that helps software customers to make a great decision in a consulting partner um, or the you know SIs, as we call them in the business. They're the partner that helps to implement a piece of enterprise software. Um, and I started the company because nothing existed. There was zero transparency in this world of software consulting. And I wanted customers to know what they didn't know before they started an implementation. Um, and so out on ravenintel.com, we have over 2,000 reviews written by customers about these enterprise software projects. And um, when you think about the word Raven, why did I name the company Raven? It really helps to provide this <clears throat> bird's eye view of implementation um, and partners. And we you know, provide that data to the, the marketplace and look at trends overall in terms of the data and can make sort of some, some correlations about what's happening in the world of software implementation um, based upon what customers are telling us about their projects. So that's what we do at ravenintel.com. Um, you know, check us out. You can uh, go out there and read all of the reviews that we have available for free. That's great. And it's such a great resource for just objective views and objective experiences that organizations have had with different implementers and system integrators. Um, just out of curiosity, I'm already going off script. We had a list of questions that we agreed to ahead of time, and I'm already... Uh, thrown in a, a curveball here, but but I, I, I'm curious, when you started the company, were system integrators and software vendors open to the idea? Did they push back on it? Were they sort of uh, skeptical of the whole idea? Because you're, you're sort of exposing the good, the bad, the ugly of what people's real experiences were versus the marketing and sales messaging that most vendors and system integrators would prefer the customers or potential customers to hear. So how did they respond to you when you created the, the platform? Um, it was mixed, honestly. Um, at first, I think there was a lot of hesitation because, um, you know, this idea of transparency and allowing customers to have a public voice um, was new in the industry. Um, I would say the best consulting firms ran toward it. They embraced the concept. They wanted to go and get all of their customers to write reviews because they knew that it would illustrate very clearly the positive um, customer success that they had. The ones who really shied away from it, and it was both a, a few software vendors as well as, um, quite honestly, the, the big uh, consulting firms, the ones that have the money to advertise at the airport, you know, they were the ones that you know even to this day there's hesitation because there's a lot of risk if they had bad implementations and we know everybody has a bad you know one or two bad uh implementations or more than that um 
you know, in their, in their portfolio. And, um, so as much as possible, um, you know, we, we want to, to have this platform available to everyone. Um, but I would say, you know, the best firms are the ones who are getting reviewed. And then there's firms that, you know, are not participating, um, potentially because, you know, there's a, a mixed, um, amount of sentiment about their projects. Right. They don't necessarily want that truth to come out. But if you're a potential buyer, of course, you you want to see the the good and the bad. I mean, I guess if you if you think about I've heard you describe Raven Intel as sort of like the Yelp for uh, for system integrators. And if you think about just choosing a restaurant or a plumber or a home repair person, you do all this research. We, we have apps to look at reviews and ratings and all that stuff. But we don't you know, we up until you started Raven, we didn't really have that for our industry. So it's interesting that there'd be some, any sort of pushback on it because it's such a normal part of, you know, the way we do research as, as humans now in the internet age. Yeah. I mean, you buy a $3 product from Amazon and you can read 2000 reviews about it. And yet customers are spending millions of dollars um, on these projects and didn't have, you know, really any objective way to see, you know, what was the other customer's experience beyond, you know, what that particular SI was giving them for a reference, there wasn't any way to really look across and see, um, you know, what was the the candid voice of customer. And, and that's really why I felt like our industry needed it. And I started Raven. Right. That's great. Well, good. And another, uh, you're a fellow disruptor in the space, which, yeah, which I always enjoy uh, chatting with people like you because you're, you're, you're not afraid to uh, sort of bring that, that stuff to light. So that's, that's great. Um, yeah, our, our industry needs some mixing up. So Yes, they do. Absolutely. Yes, it's it's uh, we've sort of been stuck in the same routines for 20 or 30 years and not a whole lot's changed, unfortunately, since I started in the industry. But it, it really needs to if, if we're going to be more more successful in this space. Um, I guess just to start then, um, speaking of, you know, shining a light on the industry and, and just looking into the good, the bad, the ugly of the industry. What are some of the the high level findings and implementation results when you look at data that you've captured on the platform here in 2022, you know, what are the general lessons, takeaways, trends, findings, all that stuff for, for the year so far? Well, I'll start first with sort of what customer focus has been. So, you know, in general, 2022, we're coming off of pandemic and, um, you know, getting back to work, um, a lot of companies back to office. Um, and so this focus that customers are, you know, have in digital transformation are at least projects that I see, you know, how do we care for a hybrid workforce? How do we um, provide digital tools to both remote workers as well as in-office workers that will help, um, you know, improve the overall em employee experience? I think the second thing, and that's sort of related to it, um, is the idea that you know skills and skills management is a top priority and you know along with the great resignation there has been um you know a continued war for talent and particularly in professional services and we'll talk about this in a little bit we saw a tremendous amount of churn in the industry um people either leaving to get you know to retire um, and not having, you know, other new employees replace them um, or they're moving organizations, moving companies within within the industry. And so there's this 
focus um, on how do we retain our top talent? How do we identify the skills that we have throughout the organization so that we can be strategic internally before you know having to look externally for candidates? How can we get each and every employee to own their own career journey? So those macro trends, I think, are what caused such a tremendous amount of projects to happen um, is that, you know, the these companies are realizing, hey, how do we do this? We haven't had to do this as much in the past. How can we quickly, you know, flex to to accommodating for some of these changes? Um, so that's that's why I think there's been so many new digital transformations happening is because of, um, you know, just the the flux in the industry and, and, and change. Um, in general, though, in terms of now, if I switch gears and, and look at what did we hear about these projects and what did we hear about implementations? In general, satisfaction is down slightly over 2021. And I think the customer grace that was given during the pandemic um, is gone. So um, related to this um, or the data point that I have is that 25% of our customers who wrote reviews this year said that they will shop around before purchasing more software from the vendor that they they just implemented. So 25% of them are already you know, thinking, well, before I purchase more software this with this particular vendor, I'm certainly going to see what else is available out there. So and is that higher than you've seen in years past, that 25%? Yeah. Okay. Yes, it, it is. It is. Um, we also saw 20% of customers say they did not get the value that they expected from their projects. Um, and, you know, there's a, a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I, that's a significant portion when you think about how big and how expensive um, and time consuming these projects are. So, you know, only you know, two out of two out of, two out of 10 said, you know, it, it missed the mark. Hmm. And that's that's sort of an absolute uh, question then. Is it like you did or you didn't get value out of your system integrator? So that's not even counting the ones that said, yeah, we sort of got some value, but not as much as we paid for or, or what we expected. Is that true? That's correct. We, and we asked the question, did you get full value, partial value, or in some cases, did you go backwards? And we have we have some of them, but the partial value one um, is is that twenty percent. And then okay. you know we have a, a small portion that said we went backwards. Um, luckily, it's not that huge, but um, you know, again, that's um, you know significant enough that you know you, you have to to stand up and take notice and think, you know, that's that's a, that's a significant portion who, um, you know, went through a huge process and, and felt like they got nothing for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that what's interesting about the, the 25% that, um, said that they would shop around for other options or other additions potentially to their existing software vendor. To me, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. It sounds like that's, that might be a healthy outcome from 2022 is that, you know, you're keeping your eyes open, keeping your options open and and not necessarily going all in and putting all your eggs in one basket of one software vendor. So mm-hmm. um, some of these trends might be a good thing. Um, you know, others might be more concerning, of course. For sure. I think, you know, best of breed um, has, you know, is, is, is definitely becoming more in vogue and, you know, one of the, I think 
things that we're seeing now in the quarter four of this year is that there's a growing share of renewals that are being delayed beyond their scheduled renew date. So 10 to 20% higher than last year, there are customers out there that are saying, you know, or um, potentially questioning, do I renew the contract with our vendor? And that's, again, that that delay is 10 to 20% higher than it was last year. And, you know, I think customers are asking, do we need this? Are we using this? Can we reduce our spend? Can we delay purchasing? Um, you know, these are things that we typically see in quarter four, but I think some with the, some of the economic um, headwinds that we're seeing right now, this is becoming, you know, more and more uh, a sentiment than it has been in years, in, you know, at least last year, for sure. Interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and so, you know, I guess another way maybe to rephrase this or just make sure I'm tracking with you here. So what you're saying is that these cloud and SaaS subscriptions are in and more or at a higher rate not being renewed, and so companies are maybe less likely now than they were in the past to just sort of blindly just keep rolling with with the renewals, if particularly if they're not using the software. That's right. That's right. Okay. So they're they're delayed beyond their renewal date, which means that customers are either letting them lapse and will not renew or they're late in making a payment on the existing system. And part of that is, is them questioning, is this something that we really need in you know 2023? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of companies, I think, uh, you know, in, in the rush to upgrade their technology, partially because of the pandemic, but also partially because a lot of the big software vendors are essentially forcing their customers off the, the legacy products and, and forcing them into an upgrade in some cases, prematurely, um, it sounds like that might be some of the fallout is, you know, they're seeing that, hey, you know, we kind of rushed into things. Maybe we overcommitted, overspend on technology. And now we're really trying to rationalize that a bit. Do you see that in later in the year here as the economy and inflation have sort of taken its toll across the world? Do you see that sort of picking up steam, you know, later in the year as far as companies just being more diligent and conservative about how they spend money on technology? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I think we, we, we saw that creep up sort of quickly, like as even November and October, you know, were happening. But I think even now with all of the news of the layoffs across the board, even companies and Amazon who've never laid off employees, that's now, um, you know, a thing. And so I think that's going to have downstream effects on purchasing um, you know, throughout, um, you know, software. And, you know, Eric, to your point earlier, a lot of people got overzealous with their purchases of cloud software, which led to a lot of shelfware. And I think where people's mind is at right now is, you know, how much of this product are we actually using? And, you know, I heard somebody refer to it as like, there's going to be a SaaS red wedding out there for those applications that nobody's logged into for the last 45 days. Um, you know, so it, if, if the, it's not being used, um, it's, it's going to get probably canceled um, in right. 2023. Okay. We're here with Bonnie Tinder talking about some of the lessons from software implementations in 2022 
as well as what to be aware of as we head into 2023. We have a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. I'm here with my co-host, Kyler Cheatham, as well as with Bonnie Tinder, who's our guest that we're talking about lessons from implementations in 2022, as well as what to look forward to in 2023. Um, one thing I want to come back to that you mentioned, Bonnie, and, and actually this is a question from, um, from Diana on LinkedIn. She asked the question of, can you speak to project success and or satisfaction with 100% virtual implementations? versus partial on-site project teams and will we see a different trend in 2023? I know you that was one of the first things you mentioned was that the hybrid delivery teams has sort of changed changed the way people perceive and engage with their, their system integrators and their implementers. Um, how does that, do you see a difference in project satisfaction of, you know, among the teams that are maybe have more of a hybrid on-site role versus ones that are 100% remote? Is there any correlation there? Um, so I don't think there's a correlation necessarily with, um, a delivery of implementation versus, um, you know, on-site teams. And I think a big difference that we have in the last two years in terms of virtual delivery is, um, video and how much more customers are, um, you know, familiar with, comfortable with a video, um, based interaction. So, um, you know, I don't think that there's been a significant change, positive or negative, relative to virtual delivery. What we have seen, though, is the project churn, um, the team churn is at an all-time high. So in 40% of the projects that we've saw reviewed in 2022, 40% of them said that their team changed somewhat or to a significant degree during the course of a project. So I think that has more to do with the negative satisfaction trend than does the delivery. Are you on site or are you remote? I think in 2023, we'll see more companies wanting to do remote delivery just because of you know the, redu the reduced expense. Um, with that. And, um, you know, but the idea that there's been a lot of churn and in professional services where people are moving, you know, organization to organization, um, and also, you know, even assignments internally, you know, are changing. So it, particularly with the software vendors that ha have had an influx of projects, um, they may have taken 
project managers off one to go and start another. So that idea of churn um, is, is, is not a good thing for these type of projects because it leads to a lot of other things like projects being late, knowledge transfer not being there, um, you know, just team dynamics not being as solid as, you know, when you know the team and you've worked with them throughout the course of a project. So that churn, I think, is a bigger issue than the delivery on site versus remote. Mm. Yeah, and that's always been a sore spot for implementations in system integrators, especially when you have a, a large team supporting you and you, you have some turnover on a project. That's always been a a challenge, a problem in a in a hiccup or a speed bump during a transformation. But what you're saying is that that dynamic has become even more prevalent and more common, unfortunately, uh, here in 2022. Correct. Correct. What do you are you getting any feedback from what? And, and you might have alluded to this a few minutes ago when you were talking about you know building competencies uh, in some of the internal dynamics of, of a project team. But are you seeing organizations respond differently in terms of how they hedge against that risk? of, you know, disruption to the project because of the turnover on their system integrator side? Yeah. So um, I think, you know, the, the the companies who are, um, how should I say, well experienced with this type of contract negotiation right in um, into their contract, the specific team and um, put a penalty for that uh, a flux mm -hmm. and team. Um, so that's one way we've seen that that happen. Um, I've, I've also heard of clients who offer bonuses to their own internal team as well to, as to the external consulting team, a bonus at the end of the project for having stayed through the duration of a project as well. Um, so that's, that's one way to, to help insulate from, from, from personnel change. Okay. That's great. Yeah, that's a great, good idea. I mean, you can, um, uh, you know, there's a few different ways you can handle that. And we had, uh, Marcus Harris, who I think you know uh, in the industry, who's an attorney that specializes in technology contracts and procurement, that sort of thing, from more from a legal uh, perspective. Um, but that's something that's uh, interesting that I hadn't even heard him say was was kind of working in some of these these mechanisms to to ensure or at least reward for uh, consistency and continuity on the project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, here's an interesting question from um, I just lost it. Where is it? There it is. Uh, this is from, I, I apologize for butchering the name in advance, but Vibhav, uh, Vibhav on LinkedIn, he asked the question, any specific areas where companies have focused to spend in 2022? Um, maybe in particular, any trends you're seeing in terms of how and where companies are spending on technology? And he gives the example of, you know, legacy app modernization or cybersecurity, or is it something else? You know, what what is it? Are you seeing trends in the types of technology that, that companies are spending on or more you know, more open or against spending money on? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say in definitely in the HCM space, it has been a lot around um, employee engagement, skills development, um, and the ability to manage work teams as opposed to, you know, like the infrastructure of, of HR. Um, so it's like, how do we enable um, and empower our employees to move internally and to work cohesively across the business, um, you know, department, uh, you know, multi in and integrating, you know, departments as opposed to looking at a department as a, a unit. So how do we enable that cross 
um, you know, cross-pollinization of employees. So I think there's a lot that was focused in the HCM space on, on those two areas and certainly recruiting and, and you know, talent acquisition. That, that was huge this year. I think looking ahead to next year, I think cybersecurity and the pure play niche vendors are going to um, have the highest revenue growth rates and not necessarily, um, you know, anything that is viewed as um, non must have solutions. So cloud data warehousing, security, intelligence, automation, anything that can show how do we reduce costs? How do we reduce risk? Those I think will be more um, you know, those will be of higher revenue growth than, um, you know, systems that are perceived as, as not um, business uh, necessary. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how it sometimes takes a recession or, un, or economic uncertainty to force organizations to really think harder and smarter about how they're spending money. Because everything you're saying, you know, you think, okay, that it's interesting that that's an outcome of the economy and sort of some of the challenges we're experiencing in the economy. But in reality, those are things that organizations should probably be doing even in good economic times too. But a lot of times they don't, they get a little, get a little sloppy and careless with how they invest and deploy technology. So sometimes it takes economic uncertainty to get them to be more disciplined and focus on some of this fundamental base. It sounds so basic when you're describing it, uh, but yet so many organizations don't do that, you know, during good yeah. times, especially. And, and, and I think the the big three questions customers are asking themselves are, number one, do we need it? Number two, can we reduce spend, um, you know, in some way as a result of this? Or, um, you know, can we delay this project um, until, you know, things are uh, looking more positive in terms of macro economy. Right, right. Interesting. Um, here's a question from Ronnie on YouTube. Ronnie asked the question, do you think massive cloud migrations are going to happen and have a bigger impact in 2023 than previous years in digital transformation projects? And what tech do you see being more uh, relevant or prevalent in, in the market in 2023? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is still a tremendous demand for cloud migrations that will continue in 2023. Um, and, you know, I think the, the vendors that have a solution around, you know, AI, um, customer and employee experience and are enablers of, um, you know, that sort of improved, um, you know, experience, whether it's, it's allowing customers to buy faster, easier, um, you know, more efficiently, or employees to stay and engage and move internally. I think those are the, the software that we saw um, to have a tremendous amount of growth this past, you know, this past year and last year as well. Um, you know, because there was so much demand to, to you know, ensure that that people have that that full digital experience as opposed to you know the legacy um, type of interactions that that were had in the past. Right. Now, what about, you you talked a little bit about best of breed and how um, the the ones that specialize in certain uh, functions or high value areas are are likely to be. Um, more successful in 23, 2023 and beyond. 
Um, but here's a question from uh, Vabhav again. Uh, and again, I apologize for butchering the name. Um, but is there any trend on vendor consolidation across the globe or in the U.S.? So as you look to these smaller niche providers, are you starting to see consolidation? Do you think, if not, do you think there will be consolidation of that space? Will Oracle and SAP and Microsoft and those guys just go out and buy these these smaller niche best of breed providers? Or what do you think will happen there? I think so. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that it wasn't more prevalent um, in this past year, although there was a lot of vendor consolidation that did happen. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there was some uh, thought that, you know, the price was inflated. Um, so I think next year, especially if, you know, some of these more small, you know, the smaller niche vendors are struggling to grow revenue, they're going to be ripe to be acquired by by the big guys. If they have a, an attractive, you know, value prop to an SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, et cetera. So I think there will be more of that in 2023 for sure. Got you. Okay. Now, what about, um, this This is a, a interesting question, and, so, and um, the part I find amusing is the account that is coming from on YouTube is a, an account called Business Productivity. And the question is, is there a need for business team productivity coaching in 2023? So it might be a, a rigged question here, but but still, it's still a good one. Um, do you do you see business team productivity? And you talked a little bit about um, you know employee engagement and training and sk- upskilling and things like that that are becoming more prevalent, more common, more important to organizations, especially on the human capital management and HR tech side of things. Do you see productivity becoming a big thing, or, or continue? Is that changing in your in your view at all? Absolutely. So the idea of business team productivity. Um, yeah, I think there's always been a need for it, but what has changed in the last couple of years is this idea of productivity across the business. How do we, you know, take um, our marketing department and have them easily be able to, you know, be on the same sort of platform, same sort of productivity measurements as, um, you know, sales or um, accounting? So how do we get all of the different business functions to work effectively and you know um, efficiently together. Um, I think that has been where you know some of the the more modern technology has has offered um, some real improvements than than what has has been had in the past. So um, you know it's the cross functional um, efficiencies that I think are are really hot right now. Interesting, very interesting. Um, so I had, I had, um, we sort of went on a detour. I took us on a detour, uh, as you were talking through some of the, the general trends. And I know we, we talked about, um, general satisfaction and the, the hybrid work situation, um, turnover and churn and, and attrition uh, on, on projects. What other, um, what other trends are you seeing in, in the market here in 2022 that we should be aware of as we go into the new year? So overall, just to, to give you a couple of, of hard metrics that we have, on-time delivery for projects was 58%. So in 42% of cases, projects were late. On-budget average was 61%. So um, you know, 39% of projects went over budget to some degree, some um, way over budget. So th- those are that, that's what we heard in... 2022, I wouldn't say that there was a significant amount of change there to what we've seen in years past. 
um, you know, it's give or take 5% in both areas. So not, not huge. However, what has changed is the cost for professional services. And, you know, like everything else, inflation has hit professional services as well. It's more expensive for these consulting firms to maintain and grow their teams with all of the competitive pressures and the, the war for talent. So it's more expensive to, to pay these consultants, which means that is, you know, those costs are going to be passed along to, to clients. So there's inflation. I think just in general, the cost for professional services is more expensive than it has been in the past. Um, you know, another thing that we're seeing are the bigger players moving downstream. So vendors who have been focused on the enterprise sized and jumbo deals are now lasering in on the mid-market. And by mid-market, that's, let's say, 5,000 employees and below. Um, and so, you know, many of the vendors with the bulk of their revenues coming from the customers that have 5,000 and plus employees have modified, you know, some pricing and implementation strategies to cater to smaller organizations because the mid-market is where, you know, the, the high volume and growth will be in, in the future as opposed to the jumbo projects. So we've seen, again, bigger, bigger fish, bigger names um, working um, in within the mid-market and becoming more competitive with some more niche players. So I think that that was something else that that we have observed as well, like smaller deals that, you know, use um, you know, large software um, that we haven't seen in the past. Interesting. Now, what about, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take a question and sort of spin it into my own question here, but uh, this is from Rushi on YouTube. Asked the question, how is demand of Oracle functional, uh, cons Oracle fusion functional consultants? And I guess just more broadly speaking, you know, especially for those that are listening in that are maybe looking for, you know, career guidance on what technology is going to provide the most opportunity or upside in 2023 and going forward. Um, are you seeing any specific vendors, um, not necessarily just in terms of market share, but just certain vendors that are really picking up steam or gaining momentum or, or certain areas that are hotter than others in terms of specific vendors? Um, do, you, do you have any data that might shed some light on that? Um, you know, I think in general, in general, um, you know, having certification and experience with the large, um, you know, name brand vendors is, is a good thing. So of course, workday, um, certified consultants are always in, you know, tremendous demand. And that's also where we saw the biggest month churn last year. Um, specific to Oracle Fusion, I'm not exactly, you know, I wouldn't say that I am uh, have any specific expertise in that particular area. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think that there's a tremendous amount of um, purchases that are happening in that space. So, you know, I would imagine that would be a, you know, a, definitely a good skill set to have. Um, SAP, SAP SuccessFactors, um, you know, also the S4HANA deals, there's a tremendous amount of growth there. Um, so that sort of functional uh, expertise, I think, would serve serve you well as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you you mentioned that, um, you know, there hasn't been a material change to the on time and on budget metrics. You said it was sort of plus minus 5%, nothing, mm -hmm. not a huge change. Whether or not those numbers are acceptable is a whole other 
another story, but what you're saying is the trend's not really moving one way or the other. What what if we look a little bit more broadly, not just at 2022, but sort of post-pandemic? Has that have those numbers changed in general since before the pandemic, especially with the the remote um, you know consulting support and the the hybrid consulting support? Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, they, they've gotten better since hmm. uh, the pandemic, um, which is like the, the good news. Um, when you look at our projects, though, that are reviewed, many of them are smaller in nature. And so the smaller projects are um, a little bit easier to keep on time and on budget when it's, you know, 90 or 120 days versus the 18 months, which was typical pre-pandemic, um, more more average um, sized projects. So on time, on budget has actually improved. Interesting. Yeah, so maybe that's an upside or, or a silver lining to the the pandemic, and and uh, yeah, and, and that's that's super interesting. I, I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have thought maybe it, it might have slowed things down across the board, um, but I suppose you know organizations are just figuring out in general how to be more efficient and, how, and more effective with resources they have, especially now that um, I'll be curious to see if the, those numbers change at all with all the layoffs and okay. organizations uh, seemingly becoming more. Um, not conservative, but um, just leaner, you know, they have less staff, you know, as they, and, and there are a lot of companies that even the ones that aren't laying off are also putting hiring freezes in place and just sort of being conservative on the resource side of things. So I'll be curious to see if or how that affects transformations potentially in the future, because there's only so much you can outsource to a, to an implementer and system integrator. You still need your internal resources to support the project if you want to be successful. So I'll be curious to see I don't know if you have any thoughts or predictions on what might happen there, or if you think that will affect transformations in 23. I think probably there will be an increase in need for staff augmentation. So the mm-hmm. idea that, oh, we'll lay off our full-time employees, but then, you know, for the course of this particular project, we'll look to a third party to supply, you know, resources internally um, that, you know, are, are more fluid. Um, so I think, there's the potential for staff augmentation to be more in demand in this next year with, with some of those layoffs for sure. Interesting. We're here with Bonnie Tinder talking about some of the lessons from software implementations in 2022, as well as what to be aware of as we head into 2023. We have a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com 
and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. I'm here with my co-host, Tyler Cheatham, as well as with Bonnie Tinder, who's our guest that we're talking about lessons from implementations in 2022, as well as what to look forward to in 2023. Uh, somewhat of a related question from Third Stage Consulting um, on YouTube asked the question, are our system integrators and their customers starting to learn how to be successful in their implementations? And what are the differences between successful teams versus those that struggle? So when you, when you look at these reviews, um, do you get the sense that in the last year or so that, that SIs and the implementing organizations are really starting to crack the code on figuring out how to, how to make these complex transformations successful? And um, regardless of your answer to that, you know, are you seeing any differences in the patterns between organizations that have higher degrees of success and satisfaction than, than ones that don't? Well, I would say history repeats itself. So um, to some degree, I, I think the, the the customers who have been through it before um, have learned from their, their previous mistakes. I would say the customers who struggled um, with projects are the ones who put the cart before the horse and led with technology and worked backwards um, instead of leading with you know a clear picture of what the outcome needs to be internally um what are the business drivers what what are the impacts that we want to have and then working backwards from there transformations should be tech enabled and not tech led and where we've seen issues happening is where customers get excited about a new piece of software and the bells and whistles of the software and you know just do a lift and shift of their existing process and data into this new software and lo and behold um you know all of those great features and functions don't solve the issue that they set out to in the first place so um the, the ones who struggle are the ones who get too wrapped up in, in software um, i would say that the second issue and this is the age-old problem so back four years ago when I started this company. And even before that, um, you know, the projects that fail are the ones who rush the implementation without proper preparation and, um, you know, a clear picture of what the outcomes need to be. And the ones that don't put the best people and best team on the project, both from an internal perspective and external, they're the ones that have a date in mind that, um, you know, we need to uh, get to a goal live by X date. And, um, you know, we'll put anybody on the project who can work on it, as opposed to being very thoughtful about who is the team that is going to get us to the most um, impactful results here. And, you know, how can we make sure that by the date that we have in mind, um, we revisit our process, we revisit, um, internal things that we need to to do prior to you know getting the software live yeah that's super interesting and really important two really important points you bring up because uh if i could for a moment it yeah, i'll role play for a moment here and, and sort of 
I'll counter that, not with something I believe. This is something I strongly disagree with, but I'm going to role play with what typically happens in the sales cycle to counter those two things you just mentioned. Those two things I absolutely agree are critical, super critical to the success of, of a project. You don't want to lead with technology. You want to lead with your business goals and objectives. And then the, um, the second one you mentioned, which, um, gosh, I just lost it. It was the... Um, Oh, not uh, being ready. The the people and the readiness and making sure you're you're ready for the implementation. So if I'm a software sales rep or system integrator, I'm I don't want to hear that because that's that's a problem for me because I need you to go all in on my technology because I'm going to make more money and I need you to start the project now. I've got 20 or 30 people I need to get staffed on this project next week and I'm going to do whatever I can to make you not do those two things that you just said. Um, so I'm going to say things like, hey, don't worry about um, you do want to lead with technology because I've got best practices. I've got pre-configured solutions and you just use our software. That's going to define for you how your processes should look. So you should lead with the technology would be my my counter to that if I were a sales rep, which I'm not. Um, but that's what I'd be saying if I were a software vendor or sales rep. I'd also be saying, hey, I've got 20 people that I'm ready to staff next week, but we're going to lose them if you don't start this project next week. These 20 people, it's the A team. These are the best I've got. They're going to be gone. And so you better start the project next week, whether you're ready or not. And so the two super unhealthy counters to what you just said, but that's that's sort of the headwind you face when you're going into these projects is you, you're going to hear something different oftentimes from the software vendor and system integrator that runs exactly opposite to what you just said, which is in your best interest, by the way. Everything you said is in your best interest. Everything I just said is not in your best interest. So how do you how do you reconcile that or do you see organizations that, you know, just, you know, what you just described, those two things, do you see organizations doing that more or is that still a challenge or, or what, what do you think there? Um, well, it's a, a reality to say, you know, if a customer delays making a decision on um, a contract, you know, SIs are not not for profit. So they, they need to put their best resources where they're actually, you know, making money. So they're not going to just let them sit waiting for um, for the, the customer, the software customer to make a decision. Um, on the other hand, there's a, a balance there. By the time that you, you know, are starting to work with a consulting firm, um, you know, they can actually, actually be instrumental in that preparation process. So you don't just like call them in the minute that you're ready. They're the ones who are helping you think through how do I need to change my processes before getting the piece of software in place. And, you know, when you can work with a good consulting firm early, they can help you plan that, you know, put that blueprint together before you start, you know, throwing a bunch of technology at your your problem. And um, so I think the earlier you can you know, contract with a consulting firm, even, you know, through the decision of what software is the right one for you, um, you know, that's going to serve you well. In yeah. terms of, you know, software salespeople, um, you know, they're, you know, they have quarterly numbers to hit, annual numbers to hit. Um, and, you know, so, so, you know, of course they want, they want you billing as soon as possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's okay to challenge, um, challenge what you're being told or, or what's being recommended to you. You know, I think what you said is accurate. You know, you, you do need, on one hand, you need help. You want to, you want to make sure you're ready before you start deploying technology. On the other hand, you might need that outside help and you probably do need that outside to help, help to help you through that process. But I think it's okay to challenge, you know, do we need 
the entire army to show up now? Are we ready for that entire army to show up now? Because that's in the, you know, the software vendor and system integrator's best interest. It might be that part of the team, um, you know, the, some of the more effective projects we've seen in terms of how organizations have used system integrators effectively is you bring in a small subset of that team first to, to help you get ready. Then you bring in the army, you know, once you're ready. But the problem is a lot of times organizations don't ask the question of, wait, why are we bringing the whole army now? We're not, you know, we haven't defined our processes yet, or we haven't figured out what we want to be. And we grew up and the meter is running now, you know, now that we've got the army on site or, or on the project. Um, so that's, that's really good advice. And I, I think it's a good, a good point. Um, here's a, just even, more of a comment. Yeah, even even with the software purchase as well, you don't have to buy every single module from day one. And that's where a lot of regret is, is, you know, it, a lot of those turn into shelfware over time, you know, start small and then go from there. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, too, because uh, we're coming up on that time of year where not only is it the end of calendar year, but for a lot of software vendors, it's the end of their fiscal year. And so a lot of them are trying really hard to hit their numbers in order to hit their numbers, they're willing to give you these one-time, allegedly one-time deals that expire at the end of December or at the end of whatever period, you know, you might be in in the future. So I think that's something that that's where a lot of companies get into trouble is they get enamored by these great deals that they got, these great end of year deals, but then they still just overspent on technology that they're never going to use. So I think yeah. you have to be real careful with that. And, you, and I have yet to see a software vendor that did not honor a deal that they put in front of a, a customer. Um, you know, they'll say, you know, you have to sign this by the end of December in order to get this one-time deal that I worked, you know, all the way up to the CEO. You know, I, I had to work this up the chain and they always make a big deal about it, about how big of a deal it, it is that you're getting this one-time deal. But we've seen a lot of clients that say, hey, we're not, we're not ready to sign a contract for all of it now. We might bite off part of it now, but six months from now, when it is time to buy the rest, I, you know, most of the time vendors are still going to honor that pricing because they want, you know, they'd rather have that than no deal at all. Well, and I think about it like, you know, going to Costco and when you just need a jar of olives and you go to Costco and you get, you know, 10 pounds of olives that end up going bad because you can't possibly, you know, eat that many olives in a period of time. So even though it seemed like a great deal at the time, you probably would have been better off just, you know, going to local grocery store and getting what you need in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about, um, so Yusef on YouTube is asking is sort of a, a string of questions here. I'm going to, I'm going to try and summarize it here. Um, but he's, he's talking about, um, he makes a comment about change management and business process mapping, which I presume, you know, that came through the thread as we were talking about readiness and, and sort of preparing for your implementation. Um, and then he makes a comment here that some cases, even the, the SI can do this part, but the best consultancy firms, I'm not sure. What, what he means by that, but I want to get to this this other question here that he had. Um, but he talks about, but part of digital transformation is as is assessments and then the best practice in the 2B um, without getting too technical or too much into project management here necessarily. Um, how do you how do you see organizations sort of navigating that sort of understanding of current state with the, the need for an improved future state? Yeah, well, here again, best consulting firms can help clients look, you know, understand what the before and after picture could look like, and particularly for their industry, um, you know, for the size of client that they are, um, you know, they're going to be able to bring in a wealth of experience if they've worked with other clients like you. So 
the, the before and after, I think, um, you know, a good consulting firm, that's part of why you spend a lot of money with them is that they can help you think through what that after picture should be like and what's realistic. I would say the other thing in terms of change management, um, you know, customers tend to shortchange this area. And it's one of the biggest regrets that we see um, is that, you know, clients don't, they, they try and make their uh, engagement scope as, you know, uh, cheap as possible or, you know, make the low cost as possible. And we'll take out some of the change management that's recommended um, and really regret that in the in the in the long term because change management is is so critical to to project success mm. interesting uh well you know we i just lost i just realized that i had lost track of time here and this is a great discussion i think there's a lot more we could talk about but i think you've given us a good um a good overview of what some of the the findings and trends are that you're seeing in in the raven tell plat the raven intel platform um what sort of closing advice might you leave with customers that are about to embark on some sort of digital transformation in 2023, particularly as it relates to uh, choosing and um, leveraging an outside consulting partner, system integrator, implementation partner. Um, what, what sort of closing advice would you give based on some of these metrics and findings that you've shared so far? I would say spend as much time looking and selecting the partner that you choose for your transformation as much as uh, you do choosing your software, because the right partner can make a project successful um, and yet the wrong partner, if even if you cho choose the best software, um, will, it can work against you as well. Um, and so, you know, making sure that you are aligned with your partner, that, um, that you've done your homework and understand you know, what's the experience of others who have, who have worked with this particular firm. Um, that's huge because a consulting firm can make and break your success. Um, and so choosing the right one is, is critical in success for a project. And certainly that's where Raven Intel can help as well. Yeah. And, and so if I go to Raven Intel, R-A-V-E-N-I-N-T-E-L.com, I can see these reviews that you're talking about. I can see these for free. I don't need to pay or, or, um, uh subscribe or anything like that. It's, it's, it's an open sort of an open platform. Yep. Absolutely. You can, you can look out there and if you've done a project review your partner out there and help others learn from your experience. Um, you know, we always are looking for customers to, to share what they've gone through. Um, so others can learn from it, but absolutely. Um, in addition to that, you know, you can contact us, um, you know, with questions, we can help you with a short list, um, you know, based on, on the reviews that we have as well. So we are here to, to make implementations better. All right. Thank you, Bonnie. Great conversation. And, and thank you for the audience questions as well. Those are really good threads of discussion. Uh, in fact, there's a lot that uh, we're going to unpack here when we come back from a quick break. We'll take that quick break now. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Can't bring the sense to wonder. 
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and, and Kyler, we just had Bonnie Tinder on the show. We were talking about some of the lessons and the, the findings from thousands of reviews that customers have given to their system integrators in 2022, as well as what that means for planning for digital transformation in 2023. What were some of your uh, takeaways and observations after listening in on that conversation? Well, first of all, what a great resource to be able to have within um, our overall industry to have the kind of that user generated feedback uh, is incredibly valuable. I can only imagine um, how that must help uh, to have the that ability to kind of see other people's experience. And, and to her point and yours too, I, I think it is mixing up the industry for the better, you know, bringing out that transparency and accountability when it comes to real life experience, as opposed to those testimonials being taken through a marketing and sales pipeline of messaging um, and being transformed into something else. So it, it's definitely nice to see that that movement and evolution towards transparency uh, within having the ability to create those reviews um, and share experiences. So. I mean, that's just a, a good due diligence when going through a software selection. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, about some of the stats she shared. Specifically, I think what resonated me was the um, customer grace and then the overall renewables or questioning renewing your software. It seems as though kind of what we talked about in the, the hot topics, just the overall tolerance in the industry for lack of, you know, a customer centric approach or not being satisfied, being okay with kind of a, a medium um, service from software vendors or other integrators and partners, uh, that's that seems to be moving away. Is that something that you've seen on the third stage side too when you're having conversations with our specific client community? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um like we talked about in that opening segment today, um, you know, companies tend to get more diligent and ask tougher questions when times are tough and when the economy is weak and there's financial uncertainty and uh, employment uncertainty, capital spending uncertainty. And in a lot of ways, executives are being forced to ask these questions, which again, back to the point I, I made in the opening segment, I think it's a silver lining of economic weakness is that it forces organizations to be a lot smarter. I think they, it, it always amazes me how organizations tend to get really lazy and sloppy in their decision-making and in their actions um, when times are good. And, and these are decisions that haunt them for years to come. You know, if you, if you overspend, for example, on a subscription agreement and you lock yourself into a really high cost structure and some unfavorable T's and C's, that's really hard to get out of. You, you can get out of it, but it's just, 
just because times are good and you're highly profitable and you're trying to use up all your budget for the year or whatever, you know, things that like that, that happen during good times, oftentimes, um, that's not a good reason to make bad decisions, but yet so many organizations do. And I'd argue the the bigger organizations are actually worse at it. I mean, they make terrible decisions sometimes. And it, it always fascinates me that these large, massive companies are capable of making such poor decisions when it comes to, you know, their long-term implementations and con- contractual commitments and all that, all that sort of stuff. So um, we are, so to answer your question, yes, we are seeing that a lot more right now where companies are just being more diligent. Uh, they're focused on risk management. They're trying to focus on high value ROI, all that good stuff. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think it's something I've always, I've always seen in my career and every time it gets me is, you know, going into a bigger organization, you think that, you know, these people got it together. They know what they're doing. You know, they got to this, this huge, huge, um, growth and, and then you look at it and sometimes it can be a complete mess, which is where, you know, technology comes in to help, help treat that, but it is not the cure, right? It's, it's certainly just a treatment, um, in a greater problem. And that, that brings me to some other things that you had talked about um, that I think are really interesting. And, and those have to do with productivity measurements and that, that concept of team synergy. So when you are going through a process of understanding what should be my technology identity within the organization and how do I need that to achieve a certain amount of productivity, how do you go about doing that to ensure that not only you're achieving the results that you want, but you're also maintaining productivity throughout the implementation and transformation? Well, I think just by asking that question and and having any sort of focus on it or at least having it on your radar is, is step one. I mean, and it's a step one that, again, a lot of organizations miss, which you wouldn't think, you know, as we talk about it, it doesn't sound like anything too crazy or too unusual, but, but it kind of is in a lot of ways, strangely enough. So I, I think that's the key is to really focus on, you know, where you want to get productivity and, and maybe I'd broaden it a little bit, not just focus on productivity, but just in general, your benefits realization and value realization, value creation. Um, where do you expect to get value out of this deployment? And if you can't clearly articulate and quantify the value, whether it's a productivity metric or, you know, increased revenue or increased customer experience, employee experience, whatever it is, you know, whatever the business benefit is, if you can't quantify it, if you can't put your finger on it, then you you have to question, well, why are we doing it then? Why are we deploying this particular technology? Um, or, you know, it, maybe it's not a question of why are we deploying the technology, but why are we deploying it that way if it's not delivering, you know, the potential business value there? And let's rethink that. How can we ensure that we actually get value out of that, out of that technology? And if we still can't get value out of that particular piece of technology, then you have to say, well, then why, why do it? You know, why waste the m- time and money on it? It's not, I know it's not cool to say, in today's day and age, but it's not the end of the world. If you keep using spreadsheets in a certain part of your business, if that's the easiest way to do things, it may not be ideal, but if it, if you can't justify a big, massive investment in something to replace that spreadsheet, then, you know, you've got to go back to the drawing board and figure out a, a better way. And it seems like you both were saying that looking at the ability to have the milestone of value as opposed to the milestone of June 15th or May 1st or having that really hard deadline because that leads to mistakes. It leads to 
um, lack of transparency, um, those types of different things. So it, it seems like that's kind of what you were recommending is to look at how you can make sure you're maximize, maximizing the benefits realization of, of the technology, not so much when it exactly is deployed. But I, I can imagine being an internal team going to your executive stakeholders and saying, all right, I want approval for this huge investment for not only a, a cost, but resources, and I'm going to have it done by X date. And that seems to be the expectation on these types of projects. So how do you coach your client sponsors, project sponsors, in having that conversation with the executive team to say, hey, you know, we need to back up and look at different KPIs, not so much a hard date? It's always beneficial, in my opinion, to, to show data and to quantify things, especially for executives. And in our 2023 digital transformation report, um, shameless plug here, if you want to download it, there's a link to the 2023 digital transformation report in this podcast episode. So if you, wherever you're watching or listening, just go down to the description field below the description of the, the podcast, you'll see a bunch of links. And usually the first one listed there is going to be the 2023 digital transformation report. But in that report, one of the data points that we have is that first of all, when you look over the years, all the years that we've been doing digital transformations, just over half of digital transformations have some sort of material operational disruption at the time they go live. So in other words, they go live with new technology and something bad happens, like they can't ship product, they can't close the books, they can't run payroll, pretty catas catastrophic things. I'm not talking about sort of your typical hiccups where you know, Kyler had a little bit of trouble closing the books. It took a little longer than normal, but she still got it done. This is more like, no, Kyler couldn't do her job. She could not, she couldn't take a customer order. We couldn't ship the product to the customer. The customer got mad and they canceled the order, that sort of thing. Those are material operational disruptions that impact just over half of organizations that go through digital transformation. And that number hasn't really changed in the 15 years or so that we've been tracking this over the years. But the bigger metric though, to be aware of, is that when you quantify the impact, the financial impact of those operational disruptions, oftentimes those disruptions and the cost of those disruptions dwarf the actual implementation cost. So in the rush or in the, the myopic focus of trying to minimize implementation costs, minimize implementation time, a lot of organizations are unknowingly and unintentionally creating a ton of extra costs later that far outweighs any sort of savings they might've gotten during the implementation. So I'm not suggesting that you should just go out there and blow your implementation budget, blow past your time frame, and just don't worry about it. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is be realistic and look at your total cost of ownership and look at the overall long-term impact, not just are we going to go live on June 15th? Are we going to hit our you know $10 million budget or whatever the budget is? That's important. Yes, you want to track that. You want to be aggressive. You want to be diligent. But if it turns into July 15th and $11 million or whatever the numbers might be, but you know that that's going to minimize that long-term risk and that long-term cost, that might be the better decision for you. But a lot of organizations won't even entertain that, that option. So um, anyway, so to your question, if you can quantify this stuff, that's probably the best way to get the attention of executives. And one thing I like to ask our client executives is what would the impact be if you couldn't ship product for two weeks? Like how would that affect your business? And let's quantify that. You know, what would the quantif what would the financial fallout from that be? And usually when you put numbers around that, you think, wow, that would be a massive risk that we just cannot take. And so then you think, okay, well, then you might want to think more about how aggressive you're trying to be in your implementation. Maybe there's a better way to, to mitigate that risk. 
Absolutely. Um, and, you know, definitely an important conversation to have, which brings me to kind of my last point that I wanted to kind of touch on in that conversation, which is the the quote-unquote A-team sales approach when it comes to vendors. Because for me, that can – we talk about team synergy. We talk about the, the importance of having – an ability to work with all of the different partners involved in this. And if you have a software vendor that's having a pressure conversation around, we have this resource, this resource, and this resource. And if you don't do that today, then these are going to become unavailable to you. I can only imagine that can be a really, really hard decision and an effective sales tactic. Um, So what would you say to an organization that's going through that situation or wants to ensure that they get the right support that matches them culturally and technically to be able to effectively implement the software that they've invested a lot of money in? I think the most important thing you can do is just make sure you have visibility and transparency into what your system integrator is suggesting and uh, and why? So, so in other words, when, when, if you get the sense that you have a system integrator or potential implementation partner that's telling you not to look behind the curtain, not to worry about what's behind the curtain, we got this handled. Um, just know that we need to place X number of people on this project, and just know that we need to start next week. But they're not telling you why, and you don't fully understand why. I would view that as a red flag. You you need to understand that before you move forward. And it, and it may not be their fault. It may be your fault. I mean, maybe what you need to do is just take more, um, ask more difficult questions and not that you want to be distrustful or, or assume the worst in people, but you do want to be skeptical and recognize that it's your business and you need to make sure that you're, you're, uh, you're navigating that accordingly. So there's a cultural piece, of course, that you want to make sure that people, to your point, that people, um, the people you bring in from the outside are going to fit in well with your team and understand your business and are going to work well with your team. But you also just want to know that you're ultimately going to be able to have ownership of this project with that system integrator and that they're going to be transparent and forthcoming with you. And that you have a clear line of sight into what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. Even just, you know, if they tell you they need 20 people on a project and they need those 20 people to start next week, then you ask why, what are these 20 people going to be doing? Do we need them all? Do we really need them all now? Could we maybe bring on five of them now and bring on the other 20 after we, or the other 15 after we, you know, define our business processes in more detail or uh, define our future state operating model and all that stuff. Those are just the types of questions that that you can start to to ask. So I think that's probably the biggest way to really see into or, or assess whether or not it's a good, a good fit for you. Well, this was such a great conversation. I, the Costco um, analogy really triggered me because my husband is notorious for buying sour cream from Costco in this, like who would ever eat that much sour cream? So I totally go with the less is more (laughs) approach in um, looking at what you actually need versus an excess of dairy products in your household or technology within your organization. Um, So such a great conversation. Thank you for sharing all those great insights. Um, I feel like you two should teach a a software selection class 101 that we can all, um, you know, subscribe to so that everyone is able to actually select the best system for their organization that's going to reach their goals, not a vendor's goals. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. That's a good, good point. And uh, thanks again to Bonnie for being here. And, and thanks for the great follow-up questions on that, Kyler, because there, there's a lot we, we didn't talk about that we, we didn't dive into in a lot of details. So 
we'll have to have her back on the show. Uh, I like the idea of talking about software selection with her on, on a future episode. So maybe we'll have her back in uh, 2023. Uh, well, good. Well, well, thank you for that. We're going to shift gears. And uh, speaking of entertaining guests and great guests and, and also looking ahead to the future of where the industry is headed, we're excited to play you a clip of Tim Creasy, who's the chief innovation officer at ProSci which if you're not familiar with ProSci, ProSci is an organization that will train and certify your team in organizational change management. And we're going to have him on the show or we're going to replay you this clip where we had him on our show earlier this year talking about the future of change management. It was one of the, the better interviews we had on this podcast. It's one of your top three for the year. So we thought we'd replay this, this uh, episode or this uh, interview. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Tim Creasy from ProSci back on the show. But first, we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're excited to play you a clip of a interview that we did earlier in 2022. It's one of our picks for the top three um, interviews of the year so far. And this is with Tim Creasy, who's the chief, in chief innovation officer of ProSci, which is a change management certification organization. Um, they've been around for, I think, 15 years or so, um, do a lot of certification and, and training within the change management field. And we had Tim on the show talking about the future of change management. So we thought we'd play this clip because it's that good. And it's a good uh, a good topic as we plan for 2023 and we think about change management, which is the most important aspect of any digital transformation. So let's roll the clip here with Tim Creasy from ProSci. You and I are both from Colorado, um, so we, we share that connection as well. And it's it's funny how, what a small world this is. Uh, we're both in the world of change and business transformation and things like that, but yet we're both from Colorado too. So that's a, a good coincidence. Um, so just to start, maybe... Um, Maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and also about ProSci for people that don't know what ProSci is. Uh, maybe you could describe both yourself and the organization, if you don't mind. Yeah, most certainly. So I'm Tim Creasy, Chief Innovation Officer at ProSci. I'll start with ProSci. Uh, it's an organization who's dedicated to help individuals and organizations build their own change capability so they can deliver, deliver more successful change outcomes really based in this notion that every change has a technical side and a people side. And we usually do a tremendous job investing time and energy and effort in the technical side, and we leave the people side to chance. Uh, and so ProSci as an organization has built out a discipline, tool set, methodology, training suite to help organizations conquer the challenges of change. 
through the people that make up the organization. Uh, so that's ProSci. Uh, we serve the change practitioner community, certainly, which I think would be a lot of the folks, you know, that uh, come to your podcast. But we also go deep into organizations, realizing that leaders have a role in driving successful change. People managers have a role in driving successful change. Uh, we need project teams to speak the language of adoption and usage. Uh, so that's the way we support our clients as they grow kind of institutional organizational muscle and change. And then, yeah, I'm the chief innovation officer. So I just celebrated 21 years with the firm about a week ago. Uh, and I kind of steer the uh, innovation, uh, really getting out in front of the community to talk about uh, that the challenges of change are unlockable with and through our people. Uh, I kind of have a funny role, Eric, right? Uh, both in terms of really diving into the discipline, really taking something like the change practitioner competency model and really blowing it out as a way for practitioners to develop themselves. And I go speak at conferences where the audience has never even heard the phrase change management, uh, just to help bring that mindset shift that successful change requires our people. And there's things that we can do about it to support our people through the change journeys that we ask them to take. So uh, I kind of play on both of those ends in this role as the chief innovation officer. It's been a wild journey, right? Uh, I was employee nine, uh, and then we shrunk to about three. Uh, and now we have a division uh, that's called RPM that runs research, product, and marketing. And so mm. to have a whole group of folks that are steering uh, that part of the organization, it's really freed me up to get to do things like these podcasts. So. Yeah, and really get the the message out there about something that's so important. It's such an important discipline. and. You know, ProSci fascinates me because, you know, when I started off doing change management consulting back in the late 90s, there wasn't any formal training program. I mean, you had like Cotter and, you know, some of the thought leaders in the change management space that had, you know, more of that academic thought leadership. But as far as like a certified program that you can get certified in, in this discipline, it, it didn't really exist before. Yeah, yeah we were founded by Jeff Hyatt. He was an engineer. And I, you know, say the way ProSci got founded was an insatiably curious engineer started asking the question, why do some projects succeed and others not? Interesting. I mean, that, that was the crux of the question. Uh, the very first big detractor that he found when he started to really investigate that question was failing to get the adoption and usage we need of the solution from the people who, it's not that the buttons didn't work, it's that we didn't help our people bring that solution to life in the way they do their day-to-day -day jobs. And so that was over 25 years ago, right? Uh, that this curious engineer spots the people side of change as the challenge he wants to investigate and help others unlock um, through actionable, practical, accessible methodologies and tools. And so, yeah, that was kind of the genesis, but you're right in the early 90s, uh, late 90s, right? It's starting to hit the business lexicon We've moved out of just kind of trying to better understand people and how human beings move through change. Uh, and people like Todd Jick and Cotter and Connor and uh, even Spencer Johnson at the end of the 90s really started to put the people side of change onto the lexicon, right? That it's something we need to be bring intentionality to if we want to achieve the results and outcomes of the, the changes we're investing in. And that's really where ProSci stepped in to really bring the research to the table and say, can we work with practitioners to understand what worked, what didn't, and what you would do differently next time? And they really start to build out the breadth and depth of this discipline that we call change management over the last 20 years.
Interesting. I mean, it's interesting. I had no idea that it was an engineer that founded ProSci, which I find fascinating because I think that's one of the problems with change management or historically had been one of the problems is it's so touchy-feely. It's sort of this vague, nebulous term, but you had that engineering discipline with more of a structured approach. That that seems to be what ProSci is. So it makes sense that an engineer started it. I just didn't know that's how the origin was. And I think that's why people got drawn to it, right, Eric? Because it threaded the needle between... A systemic mechanical approach in view of the organization uh, that, that the engineer has with business psychology, uh, sociology, anthropology, all of the human components, because we know our organizations are made up with human beings. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's a unique blend of intention, structured intentionality around the human side of our organizations. Gotcha. Well, I'd be curious to hear from the audience while we're getting going here on the conversation. How many of you have heard of ProSci and how many of you maybe have taken a ProSci course or maybe some of you are ProSci certified? I'd love to hear just in the audience um, if we've got any ProSci certified practitioners or at least people that have heard of it or, or somewhat familiar with it. And certainly if you're not familiar with it, that's exactly why we have Tim on the show. So that's no problem either. Um, you, want to, so, you want to hear one other little bit of backstory about the certification? Yeah. So, um, 2001 is when we did that first. That's when I joined the firm. Uh, we build and release the first methodology uh, as a toolkit because Jeff envisioned ProSci as a product organization, books and binders, right? Like this is the very first ProSci research report. You know, there's two of them that we know are in existence. It's 30 pages long. The current one's like four and a half pounds. Um, but he really envisioned the organization being a product organization selling books and binders that captured what we were learning about the people side of change. But people kept coming to us and saying, we need somebody, we need you to train us in this. We need you to train us in this. And so I kept hammering on him and he came back and set the bar. And I think kudos to Jeff. I think this was a nugget of ProSize success. He said, we are not going to build a three-day training program. We're going to build a transformational experience that empowers people to feel like they can tackle a challenge that they never thought they could tackle before. It's not three days of lecture. It's a three-day transformational empowering experience. And if you can design to that, then we'll step into this training space. And this was back in 03, 04. Um, and people who attended those early programs remember the days of chili cook-offs and karaoke up at a dude ranch out you know, in the mountains of Colorado. Um, but it was around that mindset and tool set shift that was coming from seeing the people side of change as something we could navigate and, and manage. Interesting. That's super interesting. I, I had no idea about the origins. In fact, when you and I first started talking about this interview, um, I thought you started uh, ProSci just because your name has been so prominent and attached to it for so long. And, and you started out of college. Is that right? Weren't you just out of college or something when you when you started there? Yeah, I joined up with ProSci. I was uh, going to go do a PhD in comparative economics because uh, my background's in political science and economics. And uh, my partner at the time, now wife and uh, mother of my children, was getting a teaching degree. Uh, and so I needed to find something to do in northern Colorado for about a year and a half. Uh, and so I went and did my that PhD. And so sure enough, stepped in, into ProSci uh, uh, and became a, fascinated with what I call the micro, micro, micro economics, right? If macroeconomics is how the, the economy is working and microeconomics is how a firm makes decisions, what really fascinates me is how Andy, Becky, Charlie, Debbie, Eric, how, what makes individuals tick? What makes them navigate and make the decisions that they make? And so 
micro microeconomics is kind of the academic lens I've kind of layered onto some of the learning that we've been doing for a couple of decades. Interesting. That's very cool. Well, just to kind of turn into the audience here, um, just some, where some some of the people are joining from today, we've got Justin from Pittsburgh. That, thanks for being here, Justin. Uh, Robert is the one on LinkedIn who's who's watching on a treadmill, which is great multitasking. Um, talking about leading change, you've got to be able to, to multitask, and uh, that's a good uh, demonstration of it there. Um, Dubai, we've got a, a couple people from Denver. Um, so thanks for being here. We've got Ukraine. Um, I won't I won't show and list them all, but there's there's a global audience here. I, I know we've got Dubai in here as well. Um, Ghana, Spokane, Washington, UAE again, um, as well as another one from Denver and, and Africa as well. So um, thanks for being here today. And in fact, um, it, one of the uh, just kind of an interesting comment that just came up here uh, on LinkedIn is just you can't lead big changes without ProSci. Um, and that's a, that's a great uh, testimony for someone who, by the way, also answered that they are certified in ProSci. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe just to start, um, you know, when you when you look at the ProSci program and, and you guys deal with these organizations all over the world. Um, and, and by the way, before I get into this question, and this relates to a, a comment here that's on uh, LinkedIn, um, you guys are a global, you offer this on a global scale, right? As far as the training, um, we've got a comment here that ProSci needs to step into Africa, but I, I believe you can get certified from Africa. Can you, can you not? Yeah, ProSci has, uh, again, uh, humble beginnings, right? In a small warehouse in Northern Colorado, uh, is kind of where I started. We now have a physical footprint uh, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Caribbean, uh, Latin America, and Spain and Portugal. Uh, but there is an affiliate network around the entire globe where you can access ProSci training programs. So within Africa, we have several partners. Uh, and if you Google ProSci Global Partner Network, uh, you'll track down information about uh, CEDAR and uh, and change uh, our friends that are down that way. Great, great. So I guess just to jump into here um, about, you know, the, the problem statement that, that you guys are trying to solve with, with ProSci, and that is that the change is hard in general. Or if, it, if this was easy, you and I probably wouldn't be in business, quite frankly. You and I would probably be doing, you'd be in economics and I don't know what I'd be doing, but it wouldn't be this probably. So, so change is hard and organizations struggle with it. Why, why is that? You guys, you've seen so many organizations, you've certified so many people that are thirsting for for learning about change, but why is it such a difficult discipline? Well, I think it gets back to that notion, and I've been talking about the two sides of the change coin, right? That there's a technical side of every change where we design, develop, and deliver a solution that meets the need, the issue, the opportunity in front of us. You do a lot of work with your clients doing ERPs, right? That's one flavor of technical solution. CRMs would be electronic health records in a hospital, merger, acquisition, even a new value system is a technical side of a change, right? Hmm. The people side of the change is how do we get people to embrace, adopt, and use whatever that solution is. And although in this change discipline, if you've been a practitioner and you hear it called the soft side of change, you know, it just makes your skin crawl, right? Um, because I think the reason it's hard, Eric, is that this is the harder side of change. The technical side of change can be incredibly complex. Merging two big organizations, absolutely. There's technical complexity in terms of pulling this financial systems together, branding, blah, blah, blah. The real hard side of the change is getting people to step into this new way of working. It's mm -hmm. helping individuals navigate, step out of where they are today, step through whatever that transition, the liminal movement is gonna be, and step into um, that new way of being. And so I, 
I think the reason it's hard is because the people side of change is the harder side of change. Now, historically, in a value system where your employees were incented for just, you know, asking how high when you told them to jump, you know, predictability, consistency, that was the value system historically. Um, change was easier then because the values aligned with what asking somebody to do something different. But new value systems over the last 20 years, the emergence of, you know, the, the interaction economy out of the service and knowledge economy, uh, these things have all amplified the people side of change as something that we cannot just leave up to giving the right uh, commands, but it's really around helping people navigate, uh, navigate that journey. And I know we're going to end up talking about the pandemic too, but the pandemic just amplified. It made the people side of change impossible to ignore. If you were one of those organizations or projects that did ignore it and leave the people side of chance, change to chance, you know, historically. Yeah. Okay. We're here listening in on an interview that we had earlier this year with Tim Creasy from ProSci. We're going to continue that conversation as soon as we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. We're here playing a replay of our interview earlier in 2022 with Tim Creasy, the Chief Innovation Officer of ProSci. Because we have a global audience, I, it might be worth asking, you know, a lot of those dynamics you just described, as far as the difficulty of changing and, and um, you know, the, the fact that in the past, maybe you could say jump and people just say how high, and that's not so much the case in today's uh, organizational cultures. Do you see differences in different parts of the world or just differing organizational cultures and how these pro-sci concepts are applied or how they navigate change in general? Or how does that affect, you know, either a global culture and or an organizational culture? How does that affect, you know, your, your change journey? Yeah, I think you're spot on because I think culture is critically important. Um, I do get a little bit provocative here. I'll say that... Uh, Culture is never the villain when a change fails, and it's never the hero when a change succeeds. Uh, we're big, big Marvel fans at our house, right? So uh, culture is neither Thanos nor Captain America. Um, culture is. It, it's the water in which we're swimming. Uh, and so I think great change practitioners, it's their job to understand, adapt, and adjust to the culture into which they're bringing to life this particular change. So I guess kind of that's my first bent. I do think culture, certainly we get geographic variation in culture, but inside of organizations, we also get tremendous variation of culture um, just because of the, you know, the values, behaviors, beliefs. 
we unpacked this with research. You know, this is kind of an interesting full circle notion of, of kind of the story of ProSci, where we have a, a, an attunement to the market, uh, a neat, an, an understanding that change at agents would like to better understand the culture they're stepping into and how it impacts the change journey they're about to attempt to navigate. And so we looked at a number of the different uh, studies, the work that was done on organizational cultures and came up with six cultural dimensions that impact how change comes to life. Because um, my other beef on the culture equation is that any of this kind of value laden, like good, good culture, bad culture, uh, culture is. And if it's not aligned with what you're trying to achieve as an organization, then you need to go about nudging the culture. It, it, but it's, it, you know, so that's, I hate the good, the good bad stuff kind of drives me crazy. So instead we went spectrums because change is kind of come to life different, right? So you take the first one to be, uh, let's say uh, uncertainty avoidance as a spectrum. Some organizations have a very low uncertainty avoidance, a high tolerance of ambiguity. Others have a, uh, the flip side, right? Neither is good nor bad, but they impact how change comes to life. And so we built a body of research that's contained in the ProSci, you know, body of knowledge that says for each of these six cultural dimensions, individualism, collectivism, what are the challenges uh, of bringing to life change in an individualistic culture? And what are the adaptations you need to make as a change practitioner? Hmm. What about for a collective culture, right? Uh, power distance. Is the organization this high or this high in terms of the orientation of where people think they need to get permission? Um, neither good nor bad, but this organization requires different change tactics than this organization. And yeah. so that's what we've built out in the research is this whole set of, for each of these dimensions, what are the challenges and adaptations you would make depending on where you live in that, uh, in that cultural phenomenon. Culture is going to be really fascinating going forward, I think, because, you know, I've spoke a lot the last couple of years about the involuntary digital transformation. Mm -hmm. that, that's what happened in March of 2020, right? For all the talk of all the executives, of all the clients you help, right, about uh, digital transformation leading up to March 2020, uh, they were mostly enamored with the technological revolution. Uh, and then all of a sudden we saw the digital transformation happen during this instantaneous work from home experiment. Um, the cultural transformation that organizations have in front of them cannot be allowed to be involuntary, right? We need, we need to make sure that we step out in front of shaping the organizations that we want to, to live in and be part of as organizations going forward. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it creates that thing that change initiatives oftentimes historically struggled with, which is that burning platform for change. Like, why do I, if I'm an employee working for you, Tim, why do I need to change? I mean, why do we need to change? Why are you doing this to me? You know, that, that sort of thing. And it sort of takes that conversation off the table and makes it a little less personal and more like this is, we're all kind of in this together and we're all trying to figure out how to, how to navigate this new post pandemic world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, just a, a uh, just a couple of comments here. One that's sort of relevant to what we were just talking about, and that is from uh, Malcolm on LinkedIn. Um, so his comment here is that uh, many companies will happily spend money on consultancy and technology. And there's a there's part two here, um, but not on education. Why and training? How? Um, so I guess that begs a question, or maybe I'll sort of spin that into a question that it triggered is. So companies are spending all this money on technology because they have to, or, you know, it's that involuntary transformation that you're talking about. 
Um, they spent all this money, in many cases, tens of millions of dollars for, for a larger organization, maybe even more for a really big one. So, uh, but they're not spending the, a lot of them are not spending adequate time and money on the education and the, the overall change management. What, it, it sort of goes back to my first question. Why, why is that? I mean, why do you, is, it a, is it a blind spot of executives? They just don't understand anything beyond the soft side of change that you were talking about? Or what, what do you think that dynamic is? Yeah, and I think uh, you're right. And I had to build on Malcolm's comment. The other one that we watch uh, organizations fall into is we never find the money to spend to do it right the first time. Yeah. But we always find the money to do it the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth time. And so I think a lot of this is around getting smarter with how we're going to implement change and position change in the organization. One of the things we started to do, Eric, back in about 2013, 14, we introduced our ROI of change management, a calculator, a whole frame. But um, I wrote a paper one time. I never published it. I think I should. It's about for human beings to make sense of anything. We need context and contrast. So here's a new idea that I'm trying to help you understand. Context is how does it relate to the stuff around it? Contrast is how is it similar or different to the something I already know? And I think when we talk about the value of change management, we've unfortunately done it in absence of the context of the real value it's gonna create. Hmm. And so we started to really work to shift this language to, um, started using the phrase people dependent project ROI. Hmm. What percentage of the project's ROI depends on people adopting and using the solution? It's somewhere between zero and a hundred percent. And one of my biggest pet peeves in the entire world is when people use the word literally incorrectly. But if you want to watch a project leader's gears or a senior leader's gears start to turn, Ask them what percentage of this project's ROI depends on people adopting and using the change. And for our most important, most strategic projects, that number is 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, right? Out of the gate. Hmm. And then we can ask the second question, which is what are we investing in driving the adoption usage of the solution? And often it's we have $500 for mouse pads and coffee mugs. Uh, and so we've created that cognitive dissonance, right? That so much of the value of the change depends on adoption and usage, but historically we've not right-sized our investments in supporting the adoption and usage of that change. Um, and I think Eric, this is, you know, a couple of the, my fun turns of phrase here, uh, that I played with is getting past the head nod. Mm-hmm. So that's one, right? Um, cause you know, 20 years ago when ProSci was really at the beginning of that change management journey, change management was still kind of the crazies in the corner. We hadn't even got the head nod. But over the last 10, 15 years, you know, things have certainly shifted. And so now you're like, oh, we need some change management on this. And oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. And I need an hour on the agenda. Whoa, 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 whoa. You need an hour of my time? I told you this change management stuff sounded good, right? Uh, and so getting past the head nod is that, you know, it sounds good until, no, you need me to do something different. Uh, and that's where we test. Are we dealing with a passive buy-in? You know, mm-hmm. I'm passively bought into change management or active buy-in by that senior leader that they're willing to take the steps and make the investment to support the adoption and usage of the, of the change. The other position, positional shift that we'll work, here, work at here is, you know, that change management's an investment, not an expense. Yeah. If we see it as an expense line, 
uh, it gets LIFO'd all the time. And do you have any supply chain background? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the audience does. LIFO is last in, first out. Right? It's a way to manage uh, inventory. It's also, unfortunately, what happens to change management on the agenda, on the budget. Mm-hmm. That if we've not anchored our value to the achievement of the project ROI, we're the last on the budget, the first off the budget, last on the agenda, first off the agenda. Um, but as soon as we start to anchor to the percentage delivery of that, that project ROI, um, that's the position shifter. I, have, I was working with this team, Eric. So uh, a team in an IT, right? IT project team rolling out a big project. We sat down with them and we all did the uh, CMROI calculator. So the change management ROI calculator. We go through and you put in all of the benefits and objectives of the project, how people dependent each one is. You do this big weighting. Uh, out at the end comes the number 62%. So the team collectively arrived at a calculation that 62% of the project ROI depended on adoption and usage. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a betting man, but I would put money on the fact that it's not 62%, right? Fire. Just based purely on statistics, it's more likely 61 or 63 or 60 or 64, or like just a normal distribution. Um, but all of a sudden they had a label, right? They and they began talking about the 62% in meetings. You know, are we do, how are we doing on the 62%? Do we think we're lined up? Are we ready to, you know, do we have that part of the organization moving to make sure we capture this the 62%? They had a label for this concept of the people dependent portion of the project ROI. And it unlocked the conversations, it unlocked mm-hmm. the way that they began to intentionally engage the people in the organization. Because it wasn't just a communication and a training plan anymore. It was what do we do to make sure we capture the 62% of this transformational technology we're rolling out. And so that, you know, that that context shifting, I think, is where we get out of the, well, we don't, is it nice to have, maybe? Um, I also think the pandemic proved that change management is not a nice to have anymore as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it disrupted people's worlds in a way that I think a lot of people can sort of see it and feel it and understand it a little bit better. But you have, you know, you, you bring up a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of before, which is that you're you're talking about, you know, hanging your hat or, or being able to latch onto a number like that 65% uh, or whatever the number is for any organization. It's X percent of the business value is tied to people. And I think that's that's really interesting because I think a lot of organizations struggle with the inverse of that. Um, which is sort of what you were saying before, which is, um, you know, the, 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 the soft nature of change management in that yeah, yeah. a lot of times a, an organization will look at a hard dollar figure like this transformation is going to cost us $10 million. Let's just say we're going to pay $10 million for new technology and a system integrator to implement it. That's a re- that to them. That's a very real number. But then you start saying, well, and then we're going to spend half a million dollars, a million dollars on change management. Then it's like, well, back to your LIFO point. Um, but or we could cut that million dollars and only spend ten million dollars instead of eleven. But the problem is that ten million dollars is not that's not a real number. That's that's a it's a number, but that number is not going to materialize that way if you don't invest in change management. So that's the other thing too is like it's not just value you're trying to get. It's also even more short sighted than that. It's like just that ten million dollars could quickly turn into twenty million dollars if you don't spend that million dollars or whatever the number is on change management. And so it's like it, yeah. I find too you've got to counter that same concept you just described you have to counter that on the cost side of other non-people aspects of the change as well have you seen that absolutely oh for sure because you know what the two most costly letters in the project world are what r and e rescope redesign retrain revisit replatform 
re-team, retreat, resign, right? When yeah. we don't think about the adoption and usage component of the solution, when we, because there's always going to be the two sides of the coin. If we only focus on that $10 million technical solution for that digital transformation and leave the people side completely ignored, that's when it turns into a 20 or a 30 or a $40 million project with all kinds of re's because mm -hmm. we've only tended to this side of the coin and both sides of the coin, we're not investing the $10 million in that, that technology to invest in the technology, right? There is a to what end? There is a how are we as an organization going to be different once this technology has been brought to life? And that is what depends on that people side of change, right? Right. The buttons yeah. work. The buttons work. It's whether or not we have become a more collaborative, integrated organization because we brought this technology to life, right? Right, right. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, and the other one last thing I'll add to that is the other, I don't know where it fits into the re concept. I love that. I love that thought, though, because that's absolutely true. Rescope, re redo, you know, redoing stuff costs a lot of money. But it's also like, what's what is the go live or the cutover to a new future state? What's that going to look like to you? Is it going to be, it's, and it, I guess it's a little bit different nuance from the business value that you were talking about. And this is just more, don't shut down the operations. Don't screw up yep. our time we transition, which a lot of companies do, and they don't quantify that. So if you can so also quantify the risk, like if we can't ship product for a month, what does that look like? What does that do to our financial? And if you put it in that context, a lot of times you, if you, especially if you can tie it back to that 65% or 75% that is, is uh, driven by people then all of a sudden it becomes very a lot more tangible to executives to say, well, we don't want that. Yeah. They, we don't want to shut down operations or not ship product or not be able to close the books. Well, if you don't want to do that, you should probably invest in the people side because that's what's going to uh, mitigate that risk largely. Absolutely. If, if anybody's on LinkedIn and wants to go find, I have a Pulse article called The Costs and Risks of Poor Adoption and Usage. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, it's about a bullet list of about 400 costs and risks if we don't get the adoption usage of the solution we need. Um, and I've turned it into a poster. It's a really cool poster. It's like, and I tell people, I'm like, it's, you know, the font's tiny and it's supposed to be. Because the way you do is you print this out and sit down with the project leader and you say, all right, for this project, are we worried about any of these things? Uh, attrition, unintended negative impact on customer, uh, the loss of information, loss of, you know, active resistance, passive resistance. There's all of those things that are part and parcel to, um, the way the people side of change, you know, gets executed and, and rolled out. Right. You want to hear one of these, uh, recost stories out of my personal life. Yeah. I got a couple of boys. Um, they're building a new park here in Boise a number of years ago, and they put this big splash pad. Right. So these splash pads, it's it's hot here in Boise in the summer. And so there's water that shoots up from this big pad and the kids run around and get wet and cooled off. Um, and so they build this park, put this huge splash pad in and they paint it like a big, beautiful star, like a sunburst. Oranges and yellows and reds. I mean, the thing is gorgeous. We show up about a week after the park opening and the water's turned off. Um, and my oldest son who doesn't mind running through every boundary ever set for him goes, can I go talk to the guy in charge and find out why? And I'm like, yeah, go for it. Uh, and he meanders up and says, why isn't the water turned on? And the guy goes, well, it turns out the paint we used gets slippery when it gets wet. Oh, so the very first day they turn this thing on and kids are going, doosh, 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 right. 
because we didn't think about the adoption and usage side of the coin. We painted it with paint. The paint was right. We hadn't thought about the adoption and usage of the solution. And so, especially in the tech space, I talked to folks, right? How often are you building a technical solution that gets slippery when it gets wet? Because you didn't actually go out and figure out when and how and where it was going to get brought to life. So um, yeah. the sad great... thing is, I mean, it, that, talk about the recosts here, right? Now they had to scrub this thing and get all the paint off. And to this day, it's probably six, seven years later, it is a big, ugly cement splash pad um, that they had to undo and back out of because they didn't think about adoption and usage um, when they were concocting that solution. So. Yeah, that's super interesting and, and a good, simple, personal case study of, and, and you think about that on a larger scale, you know, yeah. without employees and the, you know, this instead of a splash pad, you've got some kind of fancy new system you're putting in front of them, but they can't use it, don't want to use it, doesn't fit what the needs are, whatever the case may be. And you see that all, all the time. Um, here's a that I think a lot of people might be interested. In. It's more of a general question about, um, you've been talking a lot about your research articles you've written. You guys obviously do a lot of research. Um, can't, how can people find that research? Is it, do they follow you on LinkedIn or, or do you have a resource hub or something that people can go to, to get some of that data? Yeah. Um, first place you want to go is prosci.com. Um, there's loads of free, uh, information there. There's a whole entire resource center. Um, there is multiple days of webinar recordings. Uh, I actually was building an article, I might release it this week, where I pulled 24 of my favorite webinar replays to build out essentially a literal professional development day, right? Uh, all, all, and these are all just free webinar replays. There's uh, blogs, thought leadership articles. Uh, that's where you can access the research. Uh, and it's available in ProSize Hub Solution Suite, which is our uh, cloud-based tool platform includes tools for executing the methodology, uh, learning tools, but then also all of the research uh, is accessible and lives there too. Great. Uh, and then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Yeah. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn, that's where you'd want to find me, especially if you want these uh, professional development day of webinars coming in the next week. Yeah. You put out really good content um, and that's, you know, I've been following you for years now. And, and that's why I thought you started ProSci because everything you put yeah. out. Yeah. You've got really good stuff. So if you're not connected to Tim on LinkedIn, that's where I'm most connected to you. So that seems to be a really good spot to uh, connect with you. Okay, we're here listening in on an interview that we had earlier this year with Tim Creasy from ProSci. We're going to continue that conversation as soon as we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back. 
Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. We're here playing a replay of our interview earlier in 2022 with Tim Creasy, the Chief Innovation Officer of Crosi. Here's a here's an interesting question. I get this question all the time, and I honestly struggle with this. So I'd be curious to see if maybe you have a better answer than I've I've had historically, which is what does it mean to spend money on change management? What exactly should firms spend on? Is there a dollar or not a dollar amount, but maybe a percentage of your overall budget or something that you should think about. I mean, how do you, how do you quantify that for someone who's looking for more, something more tangible than just, um, you know, go spend more. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And there's not kind of a common, uh, I don't think we've standardized on what goes into the change management budget. Um, in the research, uh, there's some pretty good data around what components people typically put into a change management budget. It's often uh, a team member. You know, if it's not someone's job, it's no one's job. So a team member dedicated to uh, driving the adoption and usage of the solution, certainly training materials, communication materials, event uh, consultancy is where we actually see the dollars um, getting spent. You know, we see a wide range of investment of kind of percentage of project budget spent in change management. Usually the range will come in in the 10 to 20%-ish range, but of course that depends on the nature of the change, the impact, the, the, all of those components as well, right? Because I can think of a technology, in the technology space, I can think of a huge spend on a technology project that actually has a very small people-dependent project ROI, like a, a, a purely back-end hygiene. We got to spend a lot of money, but there's really two two guys whose job is going to be impacted by this technology hygiene project. So it's a huge technology spend, but there'd be a very tiny percentage that's on change management. Um, I can also envision tons of changes that have very little technical spend, a new value system, right? ProSci, our senior leadership team rolled out a new set of values at the beginning of 2021. There's six words on these six awesome we statements underneath each of them. That was the technical side of the solution, but the people side of that change is all, right? That it's all in behavioral mindset shift, that component. And so I don't think we can, can just pick a number and say what percentage. Uh, it's almost always more than we are already. Um, and off the side of the desk is a dangerous way to resource it. So uh, a couple of thoughts on the resource. Have you ever, have you ever met a executive or project team or an organization in general that said, you know what, you know, we went through the transformation and there were highs and lows or whatever, but I really wish we would have spent a little bit less on change management. We overinvested in change management. We should have spent more time and money on the technology piece. Have you, have you ever heard that in your career? Cause I waiting to find someone who has. <laughs> yeah. I have never yet come across the, you know what we overdid it in terms of helping our people be ready and prepared and equipped for this. Yeah. Uh, if we would have just spent more on the technical side of the coin and less on the people side, I think, yeah, I've never ever heard anybody kind of go down that path. And if you combine all the organizations that you and I have touched over 20 years or whatever it's been, I mean, that's a lot of organizations. That's a pretty big sample size, I'd say, to, to, you know, not to say it doesn't exist. Maybe there's someone out there who has overspent. They wish they would have spent less. But I guess the point, the reason I asked that question is you, you deal with organizations that haven't been through the process yet. And it's easy to say, well, change is different here. Yeah, I get it. Everyone else has problems with change. But here, everyone's excited about it. They, they want to get onto this new system. So I don't know why this is such a big deal. Why are we talking about change management? Everyone's on board. Do you, you get that dynamic as well, where it's sort of a blind spot that you're assuming that because your people are supportive of the project, that they're therefore not going to have problems adopting or adapting to the new changes? 
Yeah, there's some, I mean, you run into a couple of these different blind spots, right? There's that one, there's the, we've delivered successful change in the past. Why do we need to do it differently this time? Um, I think I can just tell people to do it. Um, what I think is interesting when we've been with organizations that have been on a bit of a journey, you know, at the beginning, it's around bringing structure and intent to the adoption and usage of a particular change. Right. So often it's wrapped around that big technology transformation, um, a big major initiative where we realize the people side is critical enough that we're going to do something different this time. But what's interesting is as organizations start to grow the muscle and it becomes repeatable, um, I kind of describe it like safety. You know, you do a big manufacturing firm, then they do a big, huge safety push. And so you get all the policies, the procedures, the methodology, the protocol, the language. You got to get that stuff all embedded because eventually safety is job one needs to be part of what everybody embraces mm -hmm. similar to change right change is everyone's job that should be part of the moniker in the organization but yeah. if we get to the point where change is everyone's job it doesn't mean that change management goes away it means it comes to life differently right it gets manifested the, the practitioners of change management the professionals of change management in the organization become more enablers than executors of the practice. They're out there, right? It's a shift towards growing change muscle as an organization, mm -hmm. resilience, tenacity, flexibility, durability, where the people side of change is the expectation, not the exception uh, when we step into changes. But that's a long evolutionary journey to get to that point where it's really embedded into the DNA uh, of the organization. Right. And in a sort of a, Another question from the audience here that sort of uh, piggybacks on that thought, um, and, is, and it's actually too long to uh, include here, but I'll, I'll read the rest of it to you. So it's the behavior and cultural change relies on reinforcements, consequences instead of predecessors and triggers. So the onus falls on leaders and managers to do something different, but it's often overlooked. And the crux of his question um, that didn't show in the, the text box here is um, how do we flip the script in that failed projects are the fault of management? not end users. And I, I love that question because I think that's, yeah. that's a scary question to ask. And, and especially if you're an executive listening, you may not, you might not want to hear this question or the answer, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, we go, I go right to the research, right? This is the very first one uh, from 1998. Um, we asked what was the greatest contributor to successful change? And in this very first study, it was active and visible participation by our senior leaders. And in all 11 of ProSize benchmarking studies, we've identified the number one success factor as active and visible sponsorship by our senior leaders. So um, it's interesting because that's not the script that you had in the chat of the end users are at fault for the failed change. That's not the script that we take to our organizations, to our clients. I mean, we get up in front of a group of senior leaders and say, hey, you all are the number one success factor and the number one obstacle to successful change. Um, your role in sponsoring change is beyond, it's not a title, it's a role and a responsibility. And to kind of go full circle on the pro size story, this is where we lean back into the research because we built a research basis for what is it that senior leaders need to do to be effective sponsors of change. And out of the research came active and visible participation, build coalitions, communicate directly, what we call the ABCs of sponsorship. So now we go into the organization and say, if you organization wanna be able to outchange the competition, outchange digital transformation, outchange all of the things coming at you, 
your leaders need to grow the muscle of being great sponsors of change, mm. which means they step into fulfilling their ABCs each time when they decide to launch a project, they know it's beyond, you know, the funding, signing a check and signing a charter. They know that they're signing a check, signing a charter and signing up to be active and visible participants, build coalitions and communicate directly. Uh, and that's where this muscle, um, where change management be goes, goes beyond a project by project by project discipline and becomes an embedded part of the organizational, uh, how the organization operates. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a good good point. And then uh, Kelly on LinkedIn has another good point, which is uh, more of a comment than a question, but curious to get your thoughts on if you've, if you've seen this work. Um, but one way to get leadership involved is to set up a governance body with senior leaders and as the change lead require discussion and sometimes training on change leadership, slip it into the governance chartering of the change effort, which I, I'm, I've always been a big believer in this whole Trojan horse approach to change management. I, I almost hate to use that term because it's, it has a negative connotation, but you sort of have to it's not even that you're 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 uh, misleading people in that way. It's more that you're you're sort of baking it in the overall DNA of the project, rather than saying here, as you refer to them, th these are the crazies off in the corner. They're going to be doing yeah. all the change stuff while we do all the real work over here. You gotta you gotta combine that and sort of make it part of the overall team. Have you seen that work effectively, or what? Are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, the analogy that our CEO Scott McAllister uses is that uh, change management should be there to get the best supporting actor award. The nice. best actor award always goes to the project, right? It's it is the in it is the initiative that senior leader put their money into into bringing about. Change management's there to get the best supporting actor award to help you achieve what you already signed up to deliver faster and more completely than you thought you're going to be able to, anyways. Uh, and so I think that's really the notion of how do we help our senior leaders realize that investing in change management is an investment in delivering what they already promised to deliver um, by addressing those, again, the biggest detractors of them delivering uh, what they deliver. One of our other favorite clients, it's a state government here in the U.S. Uh, we had the COO come and speak to a company-wide uh, meeting at ProSci last year. And her analogy that she uses is uh, change management's like the water on the water slide. Like the dynamics of a, of a slide is that you're going to end up at the bottom. Like this, this, this ERP is going to get rolled out no matter what. But do you want to go down the water slide without water? Or do you want to put some something in there to help uh, ease that that journey that people are going to be on? So, Right. Right. We also That's have great. clients that will build, build sponsor contracts. I mean, sit down with a sponsor and the sponsor contract has three parts. Why your role matters, what you can expect from me and what I need from you. Um, but it's really around establishing that expectation up front that change management is not something else. It is what you need senior leader to deliver on the promise of your most important initiatives. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a great, great uh sort of a capstone point, which is, you know, how, how do you, how do you bake it into the project and how do you, how do you make it sort of a, not a, not a nice to have, like you mentioned before, not a bunch of crazies off in the corner, but more of a, a core integral part of your, of your uh, overall transformation. Um, and there's actually, I've got a ton of questions that we did not get to. There's a ton of questions that the audience did not, that I didn't get to from the audience. So clearly there's, this is a very hot topic that a lot of people want to ask you questions. So I, we're out of time today, but I would love to have you back on the show again if you're ever open to that, because I think uh, I could just take the questions we didn't get to today and probably fill another hour easily. Um, so yeah. uh, really appreciate you being here. 
um, there's a lot that uh, that I'd love to unpack with you in the future. But I think this is a good sort of a good intro to what ProSci is, what changes, what some of the challenges are that organizations typically face, why change is important, how you can help sell it to your organization and, and make it part of your your overall team. Um, so really appreciate you being here today, Tim. This is this is super good stuff. Yeah, Eric, thank you for the opportunity. I think, uh, yeah, no, we really think this is meaningful work. Uh, it's the right way to treat our people, to set them up for success when we ask them to take on a change. Uh, and this discipline is what has grown out to enable organizations and project teams to be more thoughtful about treating their people the right way. Uh, and the neat thing is it delivers better results on time and on budget, and it helps our people navigate the challenges of change. So, yeah, really, thanks. Thanks for having me, Eric, and uh, looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Best way to reach you. LinkedIn, ProSide. Pro what else? What else you throw in there? Yeah. ProSide.com and LinkedIn are going to be the two best ways that you come track us down for sure. All right. Good stuff. Good to listen in on that interview again. And thank you, Tim, again, for being on the show earlier this year. And he's, he's another guest I'd love to have on the show again soon. Um, in fact, we've got some things unpacked from that conversation, but first we'll take a, first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 97. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world, including Google, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, etc. So be sure to check us out and subscribe wherever you listen or watch podcasts. Um, so what were your thoughts on this interview with Tim, Kyler? I know it's been a few months since we had him on and, and we got a chance to listen in again. What were some of your takeaways, thoughts, or questions that came out of that conversation? Yeah, well, Tim always does such a good job of really making the complex impact of a lack thereof change management plan um, and put it into kind of layman's terms to understand what can actually happen if you don't effectively plan for change. Um, and I, I think in 2022, one of the biggest themes that at least I've noticed in digital transformation is the the really the mainstream of change management. Everyone we we talked to as thought leaders in this space, even Bonnie earlier this episode, 
said that truly change management is going to be something that's going to set your your overall software selection, your software implementation, your digital transformation apart. I think the thing we have to do now, Eric, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that, um, as Tim was saying, is we have to kind of define change management. What is change management? What is culture? And how does that actually intersect with the human part of a technology implementation? Yeah. And, and what is it you want to be when you grow up as an organization, culturally and organizationally? Um, and, you know, I love too just tying it back to the conversation or the interview with Bonnie earlier in the episode. I love that Bonnie was so adamant about how the more successful implementations are the ones that don't start with technology. They, they use technology as an enabler. And I think Tim, the conversation with Tim and the interview with Tim further underscores that in particular, the focus on people and, and how people are going to adapt to the new technology and the new processes and the new culture that you're trying to create. So I think, yeah, you, you want to create that, that future state and define that vision for who you want to be and what you want to be when you grow up um, as part of your change strategy. It, it truly is critical to not only define it, but then to communicate it and commit to it. I think that's kind of what Tim's saying throughout that interview and, and you as well is the need for that alignment to secure that around what are we moving towards as a unified group, as opposed to what is a technology going to pull us towards. Um, it's It should be more of the propeller as opposed to the actual hook um, that pushes uh, those strategic initiatives forward, not that leads them. Um, and understanding that dynamic is is really critical to ensuring that you have the true benefits realiza- realization and then also the user adoption, which is really a piece that, that many times people forget at the, the end of a digital transformation. Yeah. And the other thing that really stood out that I, I remember from the first time I, you know, obviously when I was doing that interview several months ago, um, I love that part where he talks about, um, I forgot how we, I'm paraphrasing it, but he said something to the, the effect of the most expensive and disruptive parts of an implementation or the, is the word re, you know, when you have to re-implement, re, we recast a scope or, or just basically redo an implementation. That's a lot more expensive than if you just do it right the first time. So uh, yeah, he said it a lot better than I just did, but that was sort of the paraphrase of what he said. But I love that comment. Just anytime you have to redo something and use the word re or the, the what do you call that? The first two letters of a word when it starts with re, that's usually not a good thing. Yeah, the, the resurrection process, you know, and that's a lot of times what we do when we come in. And to your point earlier, that can be more expensive than your preliminary investment on the software as a purchase and then also the implementation. Not to mention you now have this change fatigue or this this overall um, mundane attitude in your culture around new technology because it didn't work the first time. It's just like anything else in, in human psychology that didn't work the first time. Now you have a, another layer to combat in order to make that implementation successful and those benefits realized. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And change management is a great way to realize value. I I think too often people think of it as something that's a nice to have or a touchy feely work stream in terms of change management, but it really, if you do it right, it should be something that's delivering tangible business value. And if you skimp on it and you don't invest in it, you're going to pay for it exponentially multiple times over later on when you have to either redo something and or fail to get the business value or even worse, get negative business value because your people aren't adapting to the technology and 
you just didn't deploy it effectively. Absolutely. And, and to Eric's point earlier, if you do have questions about change management, like we said, it can be a gray area, sometimes hard to define and very unique to each organization. Um, that free 2023 digital transformation report goes through all of the metrics, key metrics that we recommend looking at when it comes to change management and, and overall understanding a tactical approach and a strategic approach as opposed to just talking about how you want uh, you know, a happy, harm, harmonious culture. It can be very easier said than done. Yeah, Absolutely. We also have, you know, in addition to the 2023 Digital Transformation Report, we also have our guide to organizational change management too, which sort of dives in and unpacks a lot of what we talked about with Tim uh, in more detail, more specifically in the context of a digital transformation or ERP implementation or some other enterprise tech implementation. So be sure to check that out. And that link is in the description of this podcast episode as well, wherever you're, wherever you're listening or watching, just go to the description and you'll find the link to both the transformation report, the 2023 transformation report, as well as the guide to change management, which will uh, ideally help augment and build on some of the concepts we talked about with uh, with Tim. So good. Well, well, thank you for another great episode. That was a an entertaining, uh, you, the, your second of three, top three interviews of 2022 so far. So now I'm really excited to hear what the third one is because I have no idea what it is. So um, and if you missed it last week, we played uh, your other choice, which remind me again, what was it? It seems so long ago already as a week I know, ago. right? It was um, with John from Lockheed Martin about oh, right. the overall HR metrics and the measurement of success on the human side. So obviously, I, right. I love the human side of digital transformation, um, but I'll try and, and pick a more technical one next week. <laughs> Yeah. So if you want to see the the last one that, that Kyler chose as, as, as the first of three that were in her top three, um, check out the third segment of last week's episode number 96, where we had John uh, Heiliger from Lockheed Martin talking about workforce analytics. So that's a, a good one to check out as well. And then coming up later uh, this in a few weeks, we'll do our top 10 countdown as well and play some clips of the, the top 10 clips of we haven't decided yet if we're going to do it for the year or do it like of all time because we're, we're two years into this podcast. We're coming up on episode number 100. We might do it of all time. We'll, we'll see. It depends on how ambitious we want to get during the holidays, uh, the end of your holiday season here. So either way, uh, stick around. We have, we'll have new episodes every Wednesday. So be sure to check us out uh, next Wednesday as well. And you can also go back and listen to any of the other 96 episodes that you haven't uh, checked out. Or if there's certain segments you want to check out, you can go back and view that either in our YouTube playlist, or you can go to any of the uh, audio podcast platforms too, and obviously download any of the past, any or all of the past 96 episodes. I suppose if you're going to watch them all, you're, you're looking at, uh, you're looking at a bit of a time commitment. You're probably looking at, uh, you know, two to 300 hours of pure learning and entertainment pleasure. I don't know if you want to go that far or not, but you can, if you want to. So uh, be sure to check it out. If you, if there's any past episodes you missed, um, great show again today, Kyler, and thank you to our guests and to our audience for such great participation. We'll look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and we will see you soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.